Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, natural, story, from the space Come, well lit. Tea is hitting the spot. It reminds me of my grandmother or something. Yeah. English breakfast. English breakfast. <laughs> Up in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So any questions? I don't think so. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just freestyle. Okay. We'll Sounds just talk. Good. We'll just speak about jazz, about life. Okay. About Texas, about Taiwan. Okay. About marriage, about divorce. <laughs> All good. <laughs> Whatever comes up. Yeah, okay. we'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah, no, I, I honestly, I don't mind talking about anything, whatever. You know, oh shit. If okay. you want to go in that direction, that's fine with me. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. it, it no, doesn't no matter worries. to me. Yeah. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Sweet. All right. Let me chew this, uh, this candy down. All right. Nice. All right. So we will get this party started. Are you ready, sir? I'm ready. Zun Ming. Like, that means, I just learned that word. I think it means, like, yes, sir. All right. Here we go. Good melodic afternoon, and welcome back to another jazzy episode of Firelight Chats, broadcasting super natural stories from the world famous Space Lab Studios here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. To wit, be forewarned, as musical synesthetic whispers may be kissed upon the frontal lobes of your ears through imperfect jazzy pitches of syncopated syllables buttery <laughs> you're not <laughs> you're not supposed to be laughing that hard sorry <laughs> but <laughs> buttery wavelengths see how buttery it is <laughs> enunciated with a smooth southern drawl and soulful guitar riffs cut cold through blue hues on air conditioned summerish notes of a more crimson-tinted nostalgia, like fried chicken. (laughs) Dude, that's a lot of adjectives. (laughs) Topped off with occasional happy happy hits of finger-licking, bubbly melancholy. Our special guest today is a friend of Dennis Chang from episode 26, a fellow Canadian gold card holder and professional musician who plays with some of Taiwan's biggest stars. And the two of us right here share deep elm love for and connections to the Big D, otherwise known as Dallas, Texas in the United States of America. The, the 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 good news is that we do not intend to keep you cowboys and cowgirls waiting any longer. Here he is, fresh off his steed, his red, white, and Monday blues bucking cult, the one and only Benjamin, aka Ben. 
the big D cult. Oh my god. <laughs> I feel like you just tied my life all in there, all in one big basket. That pretty much encapsulates everything. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. Wow. I know. It caused you to break out in in life. <laughs> I'm awake now. Like just all at the same time. That like Are you filled with the spirit, sir? Yes, I definitely am, yes. Oh sure. man. Well. <laughs> welcome. Welcome, Ben wow. Holt. I don't know if we're gonna get through this, but we'll see. I don't know, but can you write my all my promo stuff for my gigs from now on? <laughs> That was banging. Yeah. That finger licking good. <laughs> that reminds me of the show we saw. Do you remember the uh, the taco? Ken Taco. Ken Taco. Unbelievable. I haven't had that yet. Have you had it yet? I have not. Can you explain yeah. that to the audience? Um I don't I don't it was like a taco, but chicken was the <laughs> was the it was like all in fried chicken, right? I think it was something like that. I don't know, I want to get it. My plan was actually like after the comedy show to go and find one of those. But it ended up, we ended up going too late, so I, I, I you know, never made it. Exactly. Oh, man. So what Ben is referring to is this past weekend, Ben and I and a couple other friends went to a comedy show at 2-3 Comedy with the great Ron Jossel. Yeah. What did you think of that night, sir? Oh, man, that was amazing. A solid, a solid night. Ron was from Canada, and I wasn't expecting that. I didn't really know too much about it. I know you were, you were inviting me, so I figured it's going to be good. Mm. So just the hang was going to be good. But yeah, Ron, was, his comedy set was amazing, and it turns out he's also Canadian, Filipino-Canadian. So that was a good, interesting blend of character, I think. It was really fun. Yeah, and that was one of his bits, the Kentucko. Yeah, right, right. Oh, was that No, that his? was an opening act, one oh, of the openers. damn, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That was another, that was one of the openers. And all the openers were good at there as well. It was great. Who was your favorite? Obviously, it was, it was Jamie. Jamie. It has to be. Jamie gets a shout out. Jamie was on the last episode as well, and she was one of the openers. Killing. Killing. What's it. her last name? Jamie Wong. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, she was fire, man. That was, that was hilarious. Right? She was yeah. so good. She's always good. She's got balls to say those kind of jokes, I think. I know. It's like political and sexual and just everything. And it's pretty funny. It's all mixed in there. Yeah. It's a little, this little powerhouse of a woman who just takes over the stage. Like, she's, she's tiny in real life. And when she's on stage, she seems like a, a big figure. Right, and right, right, right. Killing. You were mentioning that after the show, right? When yeah. we talked to her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That joke didn't land at all, but it's true though. You know, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because Ben, you can't see this big cult of a man here, this Texas man, but, but he's a pretty tall fella. Yeah. Six, two or something along those lines. So, mm. so I don't know how tall she is, but it's certainly uh, not that tall. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a really great night of comedy. And then we also did a little something after hours as well. Yeah, yeah, we went to Sappho Live. That's one of the best jazz clubs in Taipei. Sappho Live. It's right on the on Lin Sun Route, uh, Lin Sun Road, same area as Two Three Comedy. In this, we checked out the late night jam session there. It starts at eleven thirty. I think every night it's eleven thirty until two ish or so. So that was pretty cool. What do you think? I mean, you don't check out jazz too too often, right? Oh, I, I mean, I love jazz. In you know, I lived in New York City for over a decade and checked out all the places. However, that's my first time in Taipei, Sappho nice. Live. So yeah, definitely, I haven't had a chance to 
kind of immerse myself into the jazz scene here yet. But thank you very much for, you know, introducing that place to me and taking me down there because that was absolutely amazing. It kind of reminded me of like the Village Vanguard or something like that in New York City. It's a basement, basement place, yeah. which is always yeah. a nice place to have jazz. Totally. Jazz is definitely basement music, dark basement music. 100%. You know, it's funny. Sometimes they try and do jazz in concert halls, and it's just not the same thing. Like, you need to be be really close with the, with the band, and the band needs to be close to each other to really have the jazz experience. Like, I've played jazz in Guaja Ting, you know, and it's just not the same as playing in the basement of Sappho where half the audience is drunk. You know, that's, that's the jazz environment, in yeah, my opinion. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I was quite surprised, actually. I was taken back. I was like, whoa, this is... It reminded me of New York, and then I think we were kind of lucky because that trombone player mm -hmm. the main player you mentioned was living out in new york city playing in new york city he's a taiwanese guy right yeah he he lived in new york for a long time and played a lot of gigs with a lot of big players in new york michael wong was his name mm. and yeah he's uh he's trying to sort of take that that new york jazz vibe and do it in taipei and it's coming off pretty well i think oh man that was so cool i was like dude this reminds me of new york city i can't believe it where am i right now <laughs> yeah right right that's good man i think that that's probably what Shafo was going for and that to hear people are getting that experience from there they were probably pretty happy yeah 100 percent. love the vibe love yep. the the dark colors yeah bomb ass music yeah um and it was nice chilling getting a little smoke break and talking to some of your musician friends as well so yeah, that's that's part of my favorite part is just going hanging out. You know, I don't smoke, but I like I like to go for the smoke breaks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you were smoking though, so uh, you're just like a social smoker. I'm a or? hobbyist. Okay, yeah, yeah, I see. I see. It. All right. So we mentioned with uh, Ron Jossel that he is a Canadian. Dennis Chang from that previous episode who introduced me to you, and he actually mentioned you on his podcast nice. episode. You guys are all from Canada. So where in Canada are you from? Can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you come from? Sure thing. Yeah, I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. That's a suburb of Halifax, like really getting pretty close to the country, you could say. And Halifax or Nova Scotia, the province where Halifax is situated, is a it's a peninsula on the furthest eastern part of Canada, not too far from Boston, maybe about a 15 hour drive to Boston. That's probably landmark people would know a little bit better. But, you know, things that happened there, the Titanic sunk sort of near in that area. Mm. Um, yeah. So. Anyway, it's cool. Halifax currently is, uh, I think it's about 400,000 people, the population. When I was there, it would have been more around uh, 300,000. I've been gone for about 15 years. But it's a small, small town. And if you're playing jazz, or if you're playing music in general, I think to make a career out of it, really you need a big city. You need a lot of people living close together. And surely that was not happening in Halifax. And let alone if you're going to do jazz. And jazz is much more of a niche thing. So, you know, the trick there is to move, really. Like, as much as I love it, and I would love to go home and visit as much as I can, you got to find a big city. So I, I took sort of took a, a longer approach to that, but that was my main goal. I went to this university, St. Francis Xavier University, mm. and it's even more in the forest like than Halifax. It's 4,000 people is the population of this town. And also the university is 4,000. So during the school year, it's 8,000. So it's like oh. small, small town. All you're doing there is practicing music practicing your instrument. That's it. So I did that for three years and then got out of there and hopped on a plane and moved to Texas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is that also in Nova Scotia? Yep. Okay. Antigonish, Nova Scotia. And is it a music school or? It's just, just a, like a liberal arts college with, I think one of the, I think it's the oldest jazz program in Canada. So they had the first jazz program back in the seventies, I believe. 
and and it has a pretty good reputation for being a good a good music school and it certainly did when I was there and it and it was very intense like you're there just with a small group maybe 70 students in the program and you get a lot of uh you know pressure from the faculty to be your best and a lot of the faculty comes from North Texas so you're in a very intense environment where practicing is just like the most important thing of your day all day every day whoa yeah most of the faculty up in Nova Scotia are from North Texas yeah, because North Texas is a big school, and you know the diaspora from that spreads all around the world, including in Taipei. But when I'm in Nova mm. Scotia, the faculty living in this small town of Anignish, a lot of them, about half of them, had uh, master's degrees from North Texas. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it must be a great place to kind of really focus on music since there's not much else there. There's literally nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, you can party, you know, and the and the, the one of three bars yeah that they have in this town you can go hike actually honestly Mm. though it's beautiful there like you can go along the ocean it's on northumberland strait and that's a some water that goes between nova scotia and an island prince edward island off the coast of canada and it's the water is quite shallow there so it gets to be pretty warm you know for canada so for anyone in taiwan that would seem freezing cold 40 (laughs) yeah (laughs) but but like it it is incredibly beautiful if you're there in september on the northumberland strait it's like it feels like it's tropical you know the ocean is, is like warm and beautiful and there's, you know, big mountains and there's, you know, deep forests. It's, it's the hiking and things like that are beautiful. So you just do those kind of things and you practice your instrument. Hmm. That's all you do. Yeah. So, yeah, I can imagine because you mentioned the summer. I can imagine that's amazing. But what about the winters? Oh, yeah, it's a grind. Well, the problem with the summer and I've stayed summers in this town is there's nothing going on at all. You don't even have school to do. So it's like you don't do anything. Oh. And there's nobody there. I've done that before and then never again. But... <laughs> But yeah, the winters are also brutal. Like you get a lot of snow and it's freezing, freezing cold. And also it rains too. So it can be pretty gross. I remember, you know, walking to and from school and you're just walking down the street, just like trying to get to the next house to be shielded from the wind. And it's just so, so freezing cold. Um, And then what's funny too is, um, you know, if you're practicing your instrument, you get to school on on a winter day and you you practice your instrument, you go to class, you go to ensemble, you go to rehearsal, and then it's lunchtime. You got to leave the building to go find lunch somewhere. And then, and then you come back, it's like you got to start all over again. Your hands are freezing, you got to warm up again and oh. go through exercise. And it's just like you got to do it twice in a day. Oh, man. How yeah. cold does it get? Uh, I, I don't know, man. It gets pretty cold. Like it can be like minus 20 Celsius, you know, or even, you know, even colder, like minus 30. Oh, like wow. The coldest days. Yeah. And what's actually funny is a story that I tell is they don't cancel school for bad weather basically ever. Like if it's, they have their own snow removal team at the school. So they're constantly going, they're making sure that you're not going to miss classes no matter what. And I, I don't know if I ever missed a class because of like inclement weather or bad weather um, ever, but That's in, interesting. in my final year, they did cancel school for about two or three days. And it was in, um, I think it was in the end of March, early April. So we just get through this grueling, brutal winter, so cold, so much snow. And this one day out of nowhere, the sun just came out. And it was like 30 degrees Celsius and it was beautiful. The Whoa. snow melted and they just, no, they just canceled school. It was so nice. Oh, yeah. for the other reason. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it was just too nice. So everyone went outside, <laughs> like literally from their classes, everyone just went outside. No one went to class for about two or three days. We just went out in the fields, played soccer, you know, with people that, you know, you don't know the people that you're out with because usually they're in classes, you don't see them. So you just have make new friends for these two or three days, play soccer, play football, whatever. And then it snowed and we all went back to class three days later. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it was awesome. That was my final year. It was right around recital season. So I just finished my recital, the pressure's off. And it was like, man, I'll never forget it. It was great. Oh, wow. Okay. So what did you study there exactly? Jazz guitar performance. 
jazz guitar performance. Yeah, actually, they call those degrees jazz studies degrees. So I had a Bachelor of Music in Jazz Studies, and my specialty was guitar performance. So what about that? When you were going into college, you know, maybe kind of rewinding into high school, did mm -hmm. you always know when were your kind of earliest inspirations or experiences with music, with jazz music, and then maybe in particular with guitar as well? Yeah, well, one thing I certainly wasn't doing when I was in high school was planning ahead. That was not uh, <laughs> what I was what I was about. That I wasn't was, on the agenda. No, I was staying in the moment when mm. I was in high school, especially the later years, because I was just so into music. You know, I was so into guitar and I, and I played trumpet and stuff when I was younger, but I didn't really care about band or any of that stuff. I dropped all that. And I was just into playing the guitar and I was into like, you know, music from the 1960s, rock and roll, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, just totally obsessed with that kind of music and, and also the culture that sort of goes mm. around with that, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So I was just with my friends, you know, forming little rock and roll bands and blues bands and, you know, just sort of enjoying life and just loving the guitar. And just, I was so passionate about music and the guitar. I couldn't get enough of it and thought about that all the time and basically letting everything else sort of slide. And then when it was time to graduate, I was like, man, <laughs> I have no idea, no plan. And thankfully, in my hometown, there was this Nova Scotia Community College. It's a, it's a big college around the whole province of Nova Scotia, many campuses. They started for the first time ever a music department. I'm thinking like, thank God, because mm. I had no other plans. And um, I auditioned. And uh, despite my passion for music, you know, the, the energy that I was putting into it, I didn't, I wasn't like trained, like formally really at all. So I go into my audition and, and totally bomb. And in fact, I don't even get into the program. But it was the first year, so they were going to go around and, and give us a second shot. So I had a second shot. I went in, and they let me in, not because I was good enough or so good at that point, because I improved in the three or four months between the auditions. They were like, okay, this guy is obviously making gains, so we'll, we'll give him a shot. And then I got in there, and, and that sort of got me started on the college music thing. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So if it wasn't the first year of the program... You might be somewhere else right now, sir. Oh, that's right. I might be like <laughs> doing some trade or something. Yeah, it would be a different story. Yeah, no yeah that's mm -hmm. that's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, I was very lucky. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't really like screw my head on until <laughs> until after after high school. You know, I was sort of in the moment, just loving music and living that life and uh, and sort of not really, you know, engaged as far as like, you know, moving forward in, in that way of thinking. And then once I got into this community college program, and in fact, I mean, I still didn't have it together. It took a little bit of time and I actually failed at, like a history course. And that school was kind of like, if you fail a class, like you're out, you can't fail classes. Mm. And I failed it and they said, okay, well, we'll give you one more shot to redo the final exam again and I and I came in the second semester and I redid the exam passed it and then got through the first year and then it was the second year where I'm thinking like this is 100% what I want to do and I'm going to go all in on music right now and I and I just like moved moved out of my parents house moved into another place and just committed like waking up at six o'clock every morning practicing guitar eight nine ten hours a day and, and really engaging with the material from the school and really thinking like you know, like I, I want to do this thing. And also I admire the faculty at the school and I want to be like them someday. So mm. I set my sights on, okay, I'm going to get a degree, finish this, this degree, get a degree, you know, get a master's and pursue this path all the way. And I went pretty hard for three years, like just total focus on that. Okay. Cause you mentioned that when you were in high school, you had a lot of rock inspirations. Yeah. So where does jazz come into the picture? 
Well, jazz, um, I was into rock and blues and, and, and that kind of stuff. And blues is like my, mm-hmm. my first thing. I, you know, I was really into it. And part of the blues is about improvisation. It's mm-hmm. not like you don't learn the solos note for note. You, you improvise the blues. You, you sort of absorb the feeling from listening to these great recordings. And then, and then you improvise your own sort of expression of the blues. So it was the improvisation element that drew me to jazz. Mm. Jazz is the same thing as the blues. It's just a little bit more harmonic and rhythmic vocabulary and, and then the blues. So that's sort of, I think, where the connection was. Okay. So like growing up, you weren't really exposed to jazz, actually. That's right. I think when I was in high school at some point, I bought a copy of Kind of Blue and that's like Ooh, the standard. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, of course. That's like the, that's like the best jazz album oh, ever. Yep, yeah, 100%. And everyone should have a copy of that. Yep, so I got go out one, and buy it if you don't have it. Yeah, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. But that was really cool. But um, but no, I, I didn't, to be honest. And I had a, a teacher, a guitar teacher throughout high school, throughout all of high school. And he went to the same school that I, that I eventually went to, St. Francis Xavier. But he was kind of jaded and he was into rock and blues and country and these other styles. And he was a very, very great musician. And he had studied jazz and he learned jazz. But he was kind of jaded and he wasn't into it anymore. So he didn't want to teach me about it. So I'd be like, so what's this jazz you can do there? And he would be like, no, you don't want to learn this. And he would never, never show me anything, never talk about it, never tell anything. And, and that kind of, I think that the intrigue started there. I'm like, but I want to know more. And I kind of, oh. when I had my chance to sort of move on, on that path, I went for it. Right. When they tell you no, you yeah. just want to, That's I want right. to go deeper. Yep. Yep. That's your personality. I guess so. As a yeah. rock and roll kid. <laughs> I, yeah, I was definitely a rebel. So that's right. Yeah. Pretty much every point along the path, I was trying to do the opposite of what people were telling me to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can tell, right? Because you mentioned Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, right. Can you explain Jimi Hendrix for those young people out there who, God forbid, they don't know who he is? Can you explain who he is and what kind of uh, you know inspiration has he had on you? Yeah, absolutely. When I mention someone's name like that to a younger person and they don't know it, I always feel really old. You will judge them too. <laughs> I definitely judge them and also feel old. Like, exactly. man, how do you not know? Because that, that, his music was like a huge part of my world growing up. Like, and also the culture and the mystique around it. Like, there's a biography of his. It's called, um, or about him called A Room Full of Mirrors, A Room of Mirrors. Mm. I believe it, that, that book is so good, just describing his life. And that was like, I read that in high school. It had a huge influence on me. But I think where Jimi Hendrix, what's important about him as a musician in sort of the history is just, yeah, partly his attitude. You know, he was very flamboyant and playing really loud, you know, big martial amps with distorted guitar. And he would use these fuzz effects and wah pedal effects that were not so common up until that point with previous rockers. And, and also his connection with the blues. Of course, all of rock and rock and roll is coming from the blues. But Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix really, it was really clear that it was a deep influence on him. And he sort of continued on in a new and exciting way. And then there's the basic guitar techniques, the hammer-ons and those little chord things that he did that are very influential to current guitar players. If you listen to Neo Soul, like what's happening right now, it's a lot of it is based on what he had done back in the 60s. What about the best Jimi song? Oh, I don't know, man. They're they're all good. I think like <laughs> Purple Haze, Voodoo oh, Child. My goodness. You know, I think Red House. That's maybe my favorite right now. I've been listening to that recently. Oh man, classic stuff. Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. You know, I found out that Nova Scotia is the province with the world's largest exporter of Christmas trees, lobster, <laughs> gypsum, and wild berries. Did you know that, sir, about your home province? Wow. You know what? I did not know that, but that makes total sense. Does it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. You were laughing yep. when you heard that. Uh, yeah, but it's because it's totally true. I yeah. mean, that's a thing in Nova Scotia. Christmas time, you're getting a real tree for sure. It wasn't until after I left Canada that my family stopped getting real trees. But we would go in the woods and, you know, cut them ourselves. So and they're everywhere. They're beautiful, those, those pine trees. 
And uh, the, the pine trees, like maybe it's a different kind of pine tree or whatever, but the ones that grew on my family's near their house, they're like so high, like, I don't know, like six stories high, these huge, huge, huge trees, maybe not six, but like very, very massive trees. So mm. there's a lot of beautiful trees. And then going down that same path, I don't know if you know, but Boston, they get a tree from Nova Scotia once a year. Because in, I think it was 1906, there was the biggest explosion in the world, actually, before nuclear bombs came up. It was in Halifax, and it just destroyed the whole city and killed thousands of people. And the first people to come and help out was doctors from Boston took a train up, and they arrived Ooh. first. So now every year, to this day, we send our best Christmas tree every year to Boston. Oh, no way. Yep. What was that explosion? Do you know? It was the Halifax explosion. Yeah, I do know. Okay. Yeah, they forced, they forced us to know this. Yeah, uh, it's cool. Exactly. But it's the, a, a Norwegian ship. I think it was called the Emu. And then the uh, French ship called the Mont Blanc. And, and Halifax is one of the biggest, deepest natural harbors in the world. It's this really, really deep harbor. In the inner part is a massive basin. So during World War One and World War Two, a lot of ships from North America, they would meet in Halifax Harbor and prepare for, to do a convoy across the Atlantic mm. um, to Europe. So they would meet in this big basin. But there's to get into the basin, there's a small narrows. And then coming in through this narrows, the Mont Blanc and the Emu, they collided, just barely collided, but enough to start a little bit of a fire. And the Norwegian ship was like a, a hospital ship, and the French ship was full of explosives. And it caught fire. So what the French sailors did is they just, they were like, okay, we're fucked. And they just get on a little boat and they take off. No and they abandon their ship. And they could have steered it away, but no, they, they abandon their ship and they, they land on land and they run for their lives and they survive. Meanwhile, the ship slowly comes towards Halifax and just explodes. No way. Yeah, killed thousands of people. Yep. Oh, man. Your history teacher is going to be very proud of you. So <laughs> that was impressive <laughs> off the top of the head. Yeah. Got the emu and the Mont Blanc. Yeah, it's a good story. <laughs> yep. Wow. So you mentioned also your family's land. We were talking about that with our buddy Ryan at the comedy show because he owns land up in Canada as well on the other side. Mm -hmm. But you were mentioning that back in the day, they were kind of giving away land. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I think land was pretty cheap there in the first part of the 20th century. So we have a beautiful, beautiful cottage. And actually, it's two. My family and then my uncle has one as well. And it's on a nice little spread, like right on this river that goes out into into the Minas Basin. And the Minas Basin is the highest tides in the world. Hmm. So it's it's an absolutely beautiful thing to, to behold. You can sit there at the cottage and you can watch for six hours and the ocean turns to desert. The entire ocean, as far as you can see. And then six hours later, it's back to ocean again. High tide and low tide. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it really is. And you never get bored of that. You can sit there for your entire life and watch that every single day because hmm. it, 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 the water moves so much, it shapes the geography. So literally the world is always changing and evolving it's really is incredible like my grandparents they you know had their whole lives there basically staying there in the summers and they would just sit there and they would just watch it because it's so captivating and i totally understand oh man yep. they were sober <laughs> i don't know man you gotta ask them no they definitely were man they were just high on, high on life all right yeah it sounds beautiful oh man it so is. that's where you grew up that's pretty yeah. much you were born and raised there in in that cottage well no, that was the summer for summers oh okay yeah, yeah. the summer cottage yeah it was my grandparents summer home i see yeah and that land was given to them like by the government <laughs> like back many many years ago oh wow yeah, yeah how much land did they get 
I don't, I don't know the exact acreage, okay. but I know that I personally have 11 acres from that same deal, but it's more in the forest. It's not, you got to take a road, you got to drive 20 minutes or whatever into like the forest. And it's just like my 11 acres of nothing. Oh, no way. <laughs> but that goes back to with your next point about um, Nova Scotian um, exports was yeah. berries. Right. So in that forest, like my little piece of land is next to a giant, giant um, blueberry field. And that whole area is blueberry fields. Oh, yeah. that's cool. It is cool. Yeah. Do you have berries on your 11 acres? I do not. Well, I mean, I'm sure there. I'm sure there are some. They're everywhere. Right. Yeah, but not like it's. It's got to be a field because the blueberry plants. They're they're very very small. They're only like six inches off the ground. They're mm. tiny. And you got to rake them up. It's a it's a brutal job, actually. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm sure the wilderness is untamed out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. What are you gonna do with that 11 acres? Do you have plans? I don't know, man. Do you have but goals? I'm, do you have dreams for this? I think about it a lot, though. I kind of want to, yeah. want to like, it would be cool to put a little cottage there or something like that, a little cabin, and just be holding the forge. Maybe a recording studio. Oh, who knows, man. man. The next album. Yeah, that would be sick. I've been gone for so many years away from that part of the world. Like, when did I leave? In 2013. So it's been, mm-hmm. been a while. And so now, the older I get, the more I think about, like, you know... The, the the call home is always there right call yeah. to the wild <laughs> yeah i guess so but the familiar wild for yeah, me yeah exactly yeah okay so yeah i think that's kind of a perfect segue because we mentioned from the outset that we share a connection to the big d dallas yeah. so yeah. is that what happened right after college did you move out to texas you also alluded to north texas you know a lot of your professors and whatnot were from there is that part of the reason also that you moved to texas yeah, exactly. They, they were kind of saying like, okay, cool. If, if See, jazz is, music is hard. Jazz is hard. And they're saying like, they told us in the last year, they were, listen, if you have a jazz degree. Like you're just at like a, you're at like an amateur level. You can be a good amateur jazz musician. If you have a, if you study for four years as hard as you can in school, but if you want to go further and just start to get on the cusp of being a professional, you got to get your master's. Mm. And they were also very clear that if you leave and you come back, it's going to benefit you than if you just stay. So if you just stay home and practice and after five years, you're not going to be in the same place if you go. Mm. So a lot of us that graduated at that time, we were thinking about the same thing. And a bunch of us moved to Texas at the same time and other people went to other schools. But yeah, North Texas, it was a good choice because it had a great reputation and the, the network is really amazing. Like any city in the world, basically, you go to, there's going to be North Texas jazz alumni there. Mm. And there's a bunch in Taipei. So that was a, a, a good draw. And also it was quite cheap. It's a state school. And also the faculty is like really, really highly regarded. Hmm. So it was a good good move. Okay. So you did a master's in jazz studies again or? Yep. Same thing. Okay. Master's of music, jazz studies, guitar performance. So how was that program? And What were your kind of biggest memories, takeaways, or how did that kind of influence your later jazz career? Good question. It was, it was cool, man. It was one thing. It's a big school. So I mentioned that my previous school was a tiny little school in Nova Scotia. And so I went from this to all of a sudden this, um, tens of people in the program to now all of a sudden Hmm. there's hundreds of people. And also it's part of a classical program. So it's really thousands of students. So the analogy that my faculty made when I was in Nova Scotia was a small program is more like a family. You go through it together like a family, but a big program gives you a little more sense of the real world. Mm. You have to socially engage with it sort of like you would in the real world. It's almost like a simulation. It's a microcosm. Yeah, exactly. Like, for instance, you know, if you're in an ensemble, your band, it's your class, right? You can't skip class, but you can send a sub. So if you, if you can't make a rehearsal, 
you got, you got to send a sub and they always say, send a sub that's as good as you or better. If you send a sub that's worse than you, then that's going to be a problem. And that's, mm. you know, we're not going to be happy about that. So it's like, you don't have to show up as long as you send a sub. Right. And that's the same with the real world. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. And it's going to look bad on you as well. Yeah, if you right. send someone who's worse than you. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's a very important lesson that I learned there. And I try to um, share that with my students here in Taiwan that you know, you, you got to find someone as good as you possibly can if you're going to bail. In the sense of competition, of course, we're always competing with one another for gigs, but it's not as an important factor as people think. Like, they, you don't want to, like, hold people back to benefit yourself. So mm. it's like, you can't make this gig, send the best person. Sure, they might steal your gig, maybe, but probably not. The band leader is going to be more grateful to you. Your friend is going to be grateful for the gig. It's, it's going to benefit you better if you can do that. Right, right, right. And I remember last time you mentioned that you also taught. So you were teaching as well did that happen right after or was that after kind of going and playing gigs for a while and then you came back to teach yeah well i was really lucky because i did this jazz degree and it was it was three years at north texas and i was pretty focused in the school environment you know it, it was a simulation of the real world but i was i wasn't really working outside of that too too much of course i did some some gigs here and there but when i graduated i was really lucky because a local college in arlington texas they were hiring a guitar professor at the same time and I luckily got that. So I was only out of school one semester before I started teaching at the college level. Mm, that was really okay. great. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So how about Texas as kind of a hotbed for jazz? What was your life like there, man? Oh, man, it was it was so good. It was amazing. Because one thing coming from such a small town, and I mentioned earlier that the um, the music scene is really small. You got you got to you know move. You want to make something happen. And there's just so little opportunities in a small town. But all of a sudden, I'm in Dallas. And actually, the reality was that I was pursuing this career only out of like a, what's the word? Like a, I didn't really know that it was possible. I didn't truly believe. I only saw a few teachers that I had in Nova Scotia that were becoming professional musicians. I didn't really see a pathway to becoming a musician. Like, it almost seemed impossible. It was more of an abstract thing. Yeah, it was abstract. totally yeah. abstract. Yeah. It was just hope, you know, just a dream. Like, a, yeah. and I'm, But I'm thinking, I'm just, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to move to Texas. I'm going to like do this degree. And I know that maybe I'll just grind it out until I'm 50. And then maybe I'll get some sort of job at that point. But mm. it's what I want to do. So I'm going to do it anyways. Yeah. But but then I was just so like blown away by once I got out there in the scene after I graduated school, it was like all of a sudden my phone started ringing. Hmm. It's like, holy shit, there's a gig, there's a gig. And I was so grateful because I didn't really know. And these gigs were terrible when I was first starting, you know, like <laughs> making like 30 bucks to play this or do this kind of music or a musical or playing country at some dive bar or playing hmm. all sorts of random hmm. shit. But hmm. when I was getting those calls, I was like, fuck yes, yes, I'm there. You know, I did it. I don't even care. I'm going like, I didn't even have a car and I would like just do what I had to do to make it to the gigs and make things work. And I was just so, so grateful the fact that I was getting work and it was actually working. I was like making enough money to pay all my bills. And, you know, it was like really a shock. And I, what I tried to do there is I just tried to play as many different styles as I could. I didn't, I didn't try and um, get locked down with one band or one style. I was, I want to make the most of this whole thing. And so if someone calls, like I'm going to go for it. Even if it means I got to put one thing on, on hold to try something new, I really, I really emphasize that. Do you remember your very first call, your very first gig out of college? Um, I think it was, it was doing a musical. I did a lot of musical theater when I first musical got out of there. Musical theater. Yeah. Wow, yeah. interesting. Because those are gigs, I mean, in, in that area, there's a lot of community theater. And these gigs don't pay it a lot, but it's like you're playing like, um, maybe it's two weeks or three weeks or even a month where you play like four shows a week plus rehearsals. So that was cool. The first one that I got, I graduated and I had no money. I had burned up all my student loans. I had zero, zero money. And I was going to the food bank at North oh, Texas. Damn. 
And then I got a call for this gig and it was Dallas Junior Players. So it was like a youth acting program or something like that. And they were hiring a band to be the pit band for the show. And it's this big, beautiful theater in downtown Dallas. And I was so grateful for the gig. And it paid like $1,000. Oh, wow. Maybe not. Something was around seven to 700 to 1000 It was like for a, a week's work. And I'm thinking mm. like, man, holy shit. Like, yeah. I was so grateful. And I got got into that. And, and that was a, that was a good a good call. And, I, and and actually, like, those musical theater gigs, they, they sort of like were my bread and butter for the first year, I'd say. Mm. And I remember at one point, it was kind of hairy because, so I would finish this gig and, you know, or something similar. And I would come home and I'm thinking like, I have nothing on my calendar at all for the future. I have like this... You know, whatever it was, one of the gigs that I did after that, maybe the second one was a musical. It was two weeks and it paid $200 oh, for two weeks. Oh, damn. And that was more what those were like. The first one, I was very lucky. Yeah. The second one was the grind. I remember I got that 200 bucks and I had nothing on my calendar. I'm thinking like, shit, what's this, next? this is a problem. Yeah. And then, but then I would just get calls. And then that very same day, it's like, oh, can you come sub for me today to teach something? And I would like find a way to sub for some guy and teach, you know, guitar or whatever for that day. And it just kind of built in that way for a while. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that jazz is kind of the heart of musical theater as well. It's really important. Yeah, it's American music, right? Yeah. And, and those, that musical theater, that's all American music. And a lot of those shows have a lot of jazz elements for sure. Yeah. Mm. So did you have any kind of bad experiences in those early days other than not yeah. having enough money for the next week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. It was pretty, it was pretty good. I mean, like, though it, it was a struggle, like, but, but it was definitely, it was pretty good. I remember getting my first car. That was kind of a challenge. Cause I, like I said, like I had burnt up all my school money, so I didn't have any resources to get my career started. So getting a car was just like a, a difficulty. And actually, so I ended up buying a car for $2,000 from a friend and it was this old Mazda, and it was it was burning oil. <laughs> it didn't have a leak, but it would burn it. But I had to put oil in it like once a week, and, and just to keep this thing on the road. But I still oh, bought it because I needed a car. And I remember being so grateful for that car. It was like you know like standard transmission. And I enjoyed it, but it was pretty sketchy. And I remember one day I'm going to school, and my teaching job was 50 miles from where I live, and that's Texas life. Yeah, Everything is like that. Exactly. So I'm like I'm like running late. I'm gonna teach a I've got a whole class of people waiting for me. I'm teaching like music appreciation and I'm tearing on the highway in my little shitty Mazda and, and it just starts smoking out the engine. <laughs> and you know what, man? I was like, I gotta get to this fucking class. I cannot stop and I just kept going and just kept going. I'm just like I gotta make it of smoke. Oh yeah, yeah. You. Filling the car, yeah. And I'm like, I gotta make it and finally like I just had to pull over and I call the school. I'm like, Yeah, I'm not I, gonna make it. I can't make it, no <laughs> yeah. way. Um, but and that was tough tough to it was a it was a really big hit to lose that car because in texas it's not like taiwan like you, you need to have a car you have to have a car yeah everything that you do is going to be like 30 to 50 miles away or or longer to from where you live so you just need a car yeah and texas is so flat too so it just feels longer too yeah you just it's boring yeah <laughs> exactly. it's, it's not beautiful in that part of the world yeah but yeah man. losing that car i eventually got another one and it was okay but um yeah, that was that was a, that was a down point, I'd say. Oh man! So, what about teaching? So, how long did you do that, and what were some of those experiences like? Yeah, teaching was cool. I mean, that was my dream, right? Like I said, that I didn't really have my head screwed on coming out of high school. But when I saw my professors at the community college teaching, I thought, like, that's my dream job. I mm. want to do what they're doing. That is just the coolest thing ever. And I thought that, yeah, if I, when I, by the time I'm fifty, then maybe I can do that job. Mm. <laughs> like if I just grind it out as a musician, eventually I'll get that gig which is not that unrealistic, but so when I got the call to teach this, like, do the exact same job, that was my dream job. As soon as I graduated, you know, that was like, whoa. And I did the interview, got the job. I was totally shocked because it wasn't 
what I was expecting. I was mm. like, I thought I was gonna need another twenty five years right. <laughs> to get exactly. that gig. A little bit early. Yeah, it wasn't like it was this like huge high paying job or, or anything like that. But it was just that it was what I wanted to do. You know, mm. Te- I was teaching guitar, teaching music appreciation, music history, like those kind of courses. And uh, yeah, it was really a really fun time. Because, hmm. you know, you know, teaching, it's like you learn so much from teaching. You have exactly. a, a new class, and I was teaching things like classical music and stuff, which wasn't my specialty. So I would have to go home and read and read and read and read and study, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think that's something that people who don't teach don't realize. But, you know, when you're teaching something, you, you really have to know your stuff, right? So that learning process really helps with the teaching as well, and you become a student and a teacher. 100%. And to give a lecture course, like if you're just going to go and talk off the top of your head about a subject, you might cover a certain amount of that subject. But for, in order that to go smoothly, you need to know way, way more exactly. than that. Just to have it in the back of your brain. Exactly. It's like that iceberg, right? The tip of the iceberg and most of it's below, right? Like the, 100%. Like the Titanic, like your damn province that sunk the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, that no, it's so true. And that was that was great because I, I learned that lesson the hard way. You know, when you're a young teacher, you're just starting out. Like you don't always show up as prepared as you want to be, and you learn that. Yeah, I gotta be, I gotta be more on the ball next time. Exactly, it's a great learning experience. And I guess other struggles too. That things that I learned while I was there was I just was playing so many gigs. Like I would play sometimes every single night, right? Mm. And you're playing with, and I would play with all different sorts of bands, play all different sorts of styles. You know, I was playing jazz, top forty, um, uh, smooth jazz, you know, R and B, blues, whatever came my way. I was doing it musical theater. But the challenge is, it's really hard to prepare for that many that many gigs. It's almost impossible, actually. Yeah. So I learned a couple things. Some are positive and some are negative. One is the positive is that if you have a gig or something like that and you're showing up and you're not as prepared as you want to be, you still must find a way to get through the gig. You got to survive it and you got to be present. You got to do your best. And you also got to be cool. You can't be like, oh, I'm so sorry, everyone. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. No, you got to do do your thing, even if deep down you know you're not as prepared as you, as you could be. Right. You know, and, and I've, I've done that where I've, I've succeeded on that and I've done things where it still wasn't enough and, and it looked really bad. You know, mm. that, those are the struggles. So yeah, like trying to prepare, you know, some weekends I might have 150 songs that I'm responsible for, for that weekend. And it's, it's Whoa, so really, yeah. Yeah. So I might, might do like a cover band gig on, on Friday that has 40 songs and then a different cover <sighs> no. band gig on Saturday. That's another 40 songs and then church, which might be 10 songs on Sunday. And then some sort of brunch gig on Sunday afternoon, which is another set of songs. And then maybe like a jazz gig on Sunday night, another set. So it adds up. But I guess in some way that's awesome because it helps you build your musical repertoire, your knowledge, right? Not only for the classroom, but also practically speaking when you're performing as well. 100%. Yeah, you get better doing that for sure. Yeah. yeah. But there's there's a, a balance and it's a fine line. If you're working yourself too hard and mm. you don't have time to practice, you're kind of on like... Um, you're like spreading so thin. Yeah, right? you're spreading so thin. Yeah. If you can balance that, if you're just staying at home and practicing in your mom's basement, and you never go out and perform, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. But if you're, and if you're playing every single night, all different music, and, you're, and you don't have time to prepare for any gig, then you're not getting better either. Mm. So it's like finding that middle ground. And I think since the pandemic, I've had been forced to take more time. I'm able to sort of reevaluate what that might look like. Right. Yeah. So you also just mentioned there briefly about church music as well. And I know that played a pretty big role in your time in Texas. Can you talk about that experience? Sure. Yeah, that's a, a huge thing about that part of the world. And I didn't really know too much about that until, until I went there because Nova Scotia, I grew up Anglican, but it's pretty secular culture mm. and also the music culture. Like 
if you want to play in my church growing up, you'd have to be at least 70 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Minimum requirement. Yeah. Minimum requirement. Yeah. This is a, this is much different. So in Texas, it's like, there's so many churches and also different, different styles of music that's played in church. Everything from like contemporary gospel to, you know, Christian contemporary music, rock music, like more country styles and, and things like that. So, and it's kind of just a part of life as a musician. Every musician there is working in a church. And that's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. Like everyone's Sunday morning is, is at work and it's, it's really cool. So I sort of freelanced around the church scene um, when I first got out of school and also when I was in school. But when I got out, I was really fortunate to get with a church called Cross Church in Denton. And I was the musical director there for five years and I helped them grow. We grew from just being like, it was in a strip mall in the space that would have been like a dollar store or something like that mm. when we first started. And then we just knocked on the wall, knocked on the wall and over five years expanded into this huge big church. And it was really a, a fun experience to grow with them. So that's like a black African-American church. Yeah. So the, the owners, the pastor and his wife, the pastor, um, he was leading the church obviously. And his wife was the worship leader. So the head singer and um, they're African-American. And of course their parents played a huge role in sort of building this church family, but they wanted to do a church that was different from what they grew up with in the Baptist church, you know, the all African-American Baptist church. They wanted to do something that's more non-denominational and more open to anyone. And they, they made a real concerted effort to include not just African-American people, but also white people and, you know, Asian, Hispanic, whatever they thought that was really important. So the music that we played was half of it was gospel music and the other half was more like um, contemporary Christian music. I think that I wouldn't have had that experience if I hadn't been part of that church, you know, or moved to Texas at all. It wouldn't have been yeah, something that I would have really come into contact with mm. too much. But, you know, it was it was so cool. I mean, some of that music is so hard too. like like the worship leader would send me a set list uh, maybe the week before and she would say, I want to do these songs. And I would look at him. OK, there's three CCM songs and two gospel tunes. And I know like, OK, CCM, that's going to be fine. But now I got to go learn these gospel tunes and, and I would prepare charts so the other musicians could um, could play them, too. And, uh, and it was they were hard, man. Oh, it was hard. Man. I think, you know, with the, contem- the most contemporary stuff in which what we were playing like their sense of harmony is different than, um, you know, what you get in pop music or CCM or, or even jazz. Like, like they might go from one chord to another in a way that's just not <laughs> conventional at all in, in these other styles. And in, in in my brain, my jazz brain didn't have like a the terminology to understand exactly why they did that. So it was a real challenge, man, to check out that music and, and learn it. Right. The vocabulary, the syntax, yeah. the grammar. Exactly. Was... The harmonic vocabulary. Okay. And also the rhythmic vocabulary, too. <laughs> Huh. Yeah. Can you explain that? Well, harmonically? Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, even now I don't have like a good, a good way. I think one way you can describe it is with like, more like, there's, this is not precise, but something like planing, like jazz is very functional in harmony where like in classical music, you hear like at the end of a classical symphony, you hear five, one, five, one, boom, 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 like the timpani, right? And everything mm. in, the, in the piece of music resolves around this five, one resolution. They might take different paths to get there, but eventually they're going to do five, one. Jazz is like that too. Most most jazz, most you know, most Western music is like that. Um, but but see, so we just catch these little things, you know, in, in these gospel tunes where they're going to go from this chord to another chord, and it's like almost like planing. It's just kind of moving. You're just jumping from this sound to this sound, but not this functional pattern that you get with um, jazz or most other Western music. These are the little elements that I found challenging about it because they would still have functional harmony throughout the rest of the song, but there would be these little nuggets and these. Maybe there would be an intro that would have these like really weird. It'd be like bop, 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 dig up, go. And it would be rhythmically weird. And then the chords that go with it would just be so strange. And then we'd get into a song that's much more like normal, so to speak, after that weird section at the beginning. Yeah, it was weird, man. It was cool. Man, how do you keep all that in your head, man? I don't. (laughs) That's the trick. (laughs) That's the trick. Yeah, honestly, I don't know. Because we had a huge repertoire. And I have the... 
I have on my Google Drive, like I wrote it down, you know, this the arrangements um, I have on my Google Drive because basically the gigs don't pay enough where you can't immerse yourself in it in the same way. Mm. So like with jazz, like I have a repertoire of jazz that's like part of who I am. It's like inside my soul because I've worked with it over many long time and listened to it a lot over many, many years. But with other genres, if you're a freelance musician, you can't fully absorb and become that music because you got to go to work the next day on the next thing. Yeah, you know, exactly. and, I, and I'm just speaking honestly about what it's actually like to right. be a freelance musician. And this was kind of a rub that we would get in the church because the ladies, the singers were all African-American, grew up in this culture, and they're surrounded by musicians that are just embodying this style of music all the time. They live mm. it. It's part of who they am, mm-hmm. are. And, and actually, as a sort of side note, I had a student, a bass student at the college. He was um, a military veteran in his late 30s. And he was playing bass, and he invited me to go to his church. And this is in Forest Hills near near Fort Worth. And we, I drove one night to go to his rehearsal. And it was like, this is where I got to see the real gospel thing happening. Because what they, they were rehearsing for, the choir, I believe. And it was so cool because the rehearsal, they never stopped the music. They're just playing, they're just playing, and they're going to go to this section, we'll go to this section, we're going to go here, we're going to repeat this, we're going to work on this, but the music is still playing. The band, the drummer is playing, the organ player is playing. And they're not talking about chords and two five one and f sharp and whatever they're, they're just playing the music and you know they listen to it and they just sort of embody it even my student he's not like an expert musician but he's embodies this music and he, and he just sort of gets by in the moment with with the rest of the band who are like experts hmm. and, and that idea of like there's no charts they're just flowing with the music and they're just sort of living it yeah you know, we didn't do that hmm. you know being honest right because we're jazz musicians yeah so i came up in a jazz world if you catch me at a jazz gig you know one of my own gigs I'm going to be playing music that I'm living. Right. Right. Exactly. So if I'm doing a a contractor to work at this church to be the musical director, when I first started there, I was making 70 bucks a Sunday. And when I I eventually grew up to be the MD and I was making more, but I knew that the guys, I mean, I'm just being honest, Mm. the the guys that I'm going to hire, I'm going to hire my friends, my buddies that are, they're coming out of North Texas, some of them from Canada, whatever, but they're not going to have time to spend hours and hours each week making this music become part of them. And I know that. And I also know the church is too small and can't afford to pay them the amount of money that yeah. it would cost for them to do that. Exactly. So some of the big churches in Texas, like Concord Church, like they, they make like maybe a thousand bucks a week or Potter's House, right? Okay. They're getting paid big money. Huh. So you got to show up there and you got to like embody the music. Right. Right. But if you, if you got to be all in, you know, if I'm making a little bit more as the MD and the band members are making like 70 bucks, eventually it's more, I think it, it's, it's more becoming more later. But um, my mentality was, okay, I'm still hustling musician trying to survive here, trying to get gigs and whatever. And I know that my guys are too. So I'm going to do my best to make sure they don't got to do anything. So I'm mm. going to go home, my headphones on, I'm going to write down the music like note for note from the recording and I'm going to show up to rehearsal, and I'm not even going to tell them to practice. If they listen to the music, whatever, that's cool. But I'm going to make this arrangement on paper so clear that they're going to smoke it first time. Mm. And so when I when I became the, the MD there, and the old band was eventually sort of pushed out, and my guys came in, the level of music in the church went from like very, a certain level to boom, way higher. Ooh, interesting. Because I set the guys up for success, right. and they're going to walk up there, and they're they're all very talented. And they're going to use what I what I give them, and I know that it fits with their understanding of music, and they're just going to smoke it. And the, these these church ladies, they're blown away. Yeah, even though we weren't like spending twenty hours a week like just living this music, I can set it up in a way that my guys are going to smoke it, exactly. and they're going to love it. They're like, "It sounds good." How right. do you guys? How do you guys know this? Exactly, and that's right, that's right, literally right, right. what they thought. Right, but it wasn't. Right. But it was. It wasn't like that, you know. And I know. And so I was that's always finding this middle ground by by this church that is just growing and starting out and building that can't pay a lot to these musicians that are complete monster masters at what they do. And I'm going to like just 
setting yeah. them up together, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's a win-win for both. So if I do the work for this little bit of extra pay to make them be able to just smoke this by mm. doing very little work, it's going to make you guys sound good and you're not going to need to pay as much as you, you would need to if you want them to spend 20 hours a week practicing. Right. Yeah, that's what oh, I do. That's interesting. Yeah. So you did this job for five years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. So what happened after this? Why did you stop? And I moved you know, to Taiwan. <laughs> Oh, I see. That, yeah. But it was hard to leave that job, man. Oh, my God. That was a great gig. Teaching at a college and then working at this church. It was hard to say goodbye, though, man, I'll tell you. Okay. So before we moved to Taiwan, last time we were talking, you also mentioned kind of traveling on the road a bit, you know, as a freelance musician. Do you have any stories or experiences from that as well? Yeah. I mean, I did some did some traveling around the U.S. Dallas is one of the, the hotbeds of, um, of like commercial, like event music and party music. So I did a lot of that. We would fly like all over the U.S. and we would, you know, we would fly to like um, Jackson Hole, you know, and drive up through uh, like Montana or whatever. That was pretty cool. You know, fly to Florida. Before I was leaving, I got to do some of the better gigs in that in that realm. We were making pretty good money. I also did some pretty wild ones, you know, when I was first starting out too, that were, were not so cushy, where there was no airplanes. <laughs> like towards the end, I did a, I did a gig where I flew to uh, Wisconsin. We just like flew there, play the gig, fly back, and make a bunch of money. <laughs> that oh, was that wow. was that was later. But at the beginning, I also did a gig in Wisconsin where we were going to drive there <laughs> from Texas to yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it called? Uh, how can I forget? Richland Center. Yeah, Richland Center. Whoa. We we were joking because we're taking MR, we're taking the uh, MRT. We were taking we were driving <laughs> there and we were looking at Google Maps like oh it's another fifteen hours to Richland Center. <laughs> oh man. Whenever someone asked, the answer was always fifteen hours to Richland Center. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean that was wild. So it kind of like in the, the same way that I I came into this church and I was trying to help this church build up their thing and helping my musicians get work. I did the same thing in the country scene as well at the same time. So there was a country artist um, that was looking for a band to do some gigs, whatever. And he had this one gig and, and I helped him to put together a band to do that. So I think the gig paid $500 per musician, but we had to drive with him and his wife in a van from Dallas to Richland Center. <laughs> it took like 16 hours the way there or 20 hours the way there and 16 on the way back because we knew where we were going. But it was a grind, man. That was a tough gig. So, you know, I did the same thing. I, like, learned the music. It was the MD for that. And then we got, on the day of, we got together at, like, like 4 in the morning and drove in this van. That's crazy. That's so weird, too. You're going up north to play country music. Well, because country music is from the country. So yeah. we, were going to the, we were going to Wisconsin, middle of nowhere. Man. Oh, you know even, what I mean? Even up north country. It's, yeah, it's yeah. It's just as deep as, like, down south country. Oh, oh yeah, man, totally. <laughs> yeah, well, we were going to go play a tractor pull which is like the most oh, hillbilly thing ever. Yeah, that's up in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. So we're like at this, we eventually get there after this epic drive and it's, it's in this barn and they're, they're celebrating this tractor pull. And tractor pull is where you get a tractor and you soup it up so it can pull a lot of weight. It's so you just get these like really loud engines. Just going straight. Yeah, very slowly because they're pulling heavy weight. Right, <laughs> that, making a bunch of noise and yeah, burning yeah. rubber. People are drinking and whatever. So yeah, we get up there, man, and play this after party. You know, it was it was pretty wild. And the thing is, with this other band I mentioned where we were flying around, like we would get, we would fly there and we'd get a nice hotel and we were treated really well. But this, there was no place to stay. So where we stayed was one of the organizers' house. And he was actually the town gynecologist. This man. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. That was, so he was one of the more more high status people in the community. Of course, he's a gynecologist. <laughs> yeah, he knows everyone's wives. <laughs> oh, dang. Right, for so, better or worse. For better or worse, yep. man. So we finished this gig, and we don't know what the fuck we're doing. So we finished the gig, and they're giving us um, like peach moonshine. So moonshine with peaches in it. And I'm thinking, like, am That's I going to go blind from drinking this? I don't even know. Yeah. So 
we do the it's gig risky. middle of the night and we got to drive like through this old sketchy town into the forest into like this huge cornfield and the town gynecologist his nice house is in this fucking huge cornfield it's in the middle of nowhere it's like a horror movie right and <laughs> children we, of the corn yeah totally man and we get in there and there's just like like you know deer and moose you know antlers and moose heads all over the walls <sighs> dead animals taxidermied everywhere and we're like brought down to the basement where we're going to stay on the floor. So this whole country band is going to sleep on the floor on mattresses in the basement of this town gynecologist house. And all the walls are surrounded by guns, hundreds and hundreds of guns. Yeah. No way. It's one of those like zombie apocalypse type guys, I think, but he just got the money. He just spends it on guns apparently. So we're just, we stayed the night there and woke up the next morning and they gave us breakfast and we drove 16 hours home. That's memorable. It is man. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of, in the early days, a lot of gigs like that. <laughs> Oh, Later shit. we had an airplane, and actually I have another one. I just remember from the same the same kind of vibe. We went with the same band. This this country singer was a mess because he was like in his like mid forties and he was super overweight, but he was a veteran. So in America, mm. people will be really sympathetic towards veterans. So even though he sucked at music, he had a good message. So right. people were kind of into it, right? But he, but it was wasn't going anywhere. But we just wanted to make some money. So the next gig we had with him was it was in Nashville and it paid three hundred dollars because trip was only twelve hour drive instead of a twenty hour drive so it paid a little less. <laughs> so get this man, we drive from same thing four four in the morning drive from Dallas drive all day to um, the Fair Park in Nashville Tennessee and we get out <laughs> and we, we're there just before we're supposed to play we set up our stuff on the stage you know we start to play we play two songs it starts raining. So show was canceled. We put our stuff back in the car and we drive back. Oh, no way. You didn't even get to perform. Yeah, we played for like five minutes. Yeah, and we still got paid though. So yeah, we drove, we, we got out of that gig. We After our five minute set, we drove to a convenience store, bought a bunch of beer and just everyone drank in the car on the way back. And I, I didn't really drink too much, but everyone passed out. So it's just me in the far back of the van and the wife is driving in the front of the van and everyone else is like... And I'm thinking like, man, this is four in the morning, like, or whatever, two in the morning, we're going to die for sure. Like she's going to fall asleep and we're fucked. You like, I would ask the lady, I was like, so, Hey, how you doing up there? She'd be like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> oh shit. So that story goes on. I mean, let me continue. So we finally get back. We drive all through the night. By the time we get back, it's the morning, the next day and half the band, me and two, the bass player and the drummer, we get another festival gig in another part of Texas. So we, we basically just get out of that van, we get another car and we drive two hours to Stephenville in the middle of nowhere where we're playing um, with a different country band and we're playing at a, like a cow pasture. <laughs> so it's this huge stage for this little tiny concert, but it's a massive, massive stage and maybe a couple hundred people. And there's a shitload of cows out there and it's the middle of summertime. It must've been like 35, 40 degrees. It's hot as fuck, but we had a great setup and we, we started to play with this guy and it's going really, really well. It's sounding really good. The gear is working. Everything's really amazing. Cows are dancing. Cows are dancing, man. Yeah, they're spraying milk everywhere or something. <laughs> and and it's just like, man, we're really just engaged with this music. Even though we didn't sleep, we're really having a good time because this artist is actually very, very talented. And then all, all of a sudden, halfway through his set, he goes, thank you, Stephenville. Good night. You know, it's the middle of the day. And I'm like, what the fuck? We still got <laughs> half the songs left. And so this dude goes backstage and he goes, backstage he goes behind the stage into the field and passes out no. from heat stroke he had heat stroke oh, so we didn't finish that show either and people are dumping water and i'm trying to keep him alive and whatever and that was the end man he didn't even know where he was he didn't know what time of day it was he did not man no he just wanted to go to sleep he did man yeah he was out man and we rehearsed we we actually prepared pretty hard for that gig but no this guy had enough <laughs> oh 
dude that's so crazy man yeah how is it like playing in nashville i mean i barely know right <laughs> <laughs> oh that was the only time that's that was it? a state yeah that was the no well i mean that was the only time i had a real gig there okay we, we played at the state fair but i did go back there we because it's kind of like between not halfway but in between um nova scotia where i'm from and dallas so one year my parents and my sister flew there and me and my wife drove up there and we met for we did christmas there so we rented a house and spent a week or so hmm. in nashville so we played you know went to the jams and played with some people and stuff but yeah okay. that's the only real experience i had in nashville oh man all right and then we also mentioned at the the top our connection with deep ellum mm. it's a kind of very historic town in in dallas it says here deep ellum's claim to fame has been its music by the 1920s the neighborhood had become a hotbed for early jazz and blues musicians hosting the likes of blind lemon jefferson robert johnson huddy Leadbelly, Leadbelly, Leadbetter. And Bessie Smith in Deep Ellum clubs such as the Harlem and the Palace. So that's... Big names. Yeah, those are some serious names. Deep Ellum is a super cool area in Dallas. If anyone has been to Dallas, they will know. You were telling me before about your experiences there and how that was a very important part of your time in Texas as well. It really, really was. Like, I love Deep Ellum so much. It's a wild place. You know, a lot of bad things happen there, but also a lot of really good things. It's got mm -hmm. everything. It's just a great, great culture there. It's an artist area. You know, this. it's kind of seedy, but it's really cool. So I was talking about playing in church, and I was talking about teaching in college. While I'm doing that, I'm in Deep Ellum every single week, too. Ooh. Yeah, so I'm doing everything. The first gig I had in Deep Ellum was... Um, at the place called the Freeman Cajun Cafe. And I basically played there at least once or twice a week for the whole time that I lived in for about five years. But it was actually this this band that was started from some friends of mine, three Japanese guys and a Taiwanese girl and me. We had, we formed a band or they asked me to be in their band playing like like New Orleans music in the, uh, you know, we're, there are all these, you know, Asian cats and, the, and then me. So we're not like, you know, obviously from there, but that's the, amazing. But the tuba player in that band was an expert in the music. He studied it very, very, very hard. So we had we had a little band. We were doing that, and that was cool. And, and during that time, um, I was like sitting around, and I got an, a message from uh, this guy, a total random guy on Facebook that I didn't know, named John Jay. He hmm. messaged me, and I and I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? And he goes, can you play at the, at the Freeman tonight? And I'm like, it's like hundred bucks Friday night. I'm like. Yes, I will yes. be there. Yeah, and I had no idea what I'm getting myself into. There's no, no. He didn't say what the music was or what I gotta play or just be here at this time or even who he was. Yeah, or even who he was. This, this old man, you know, it wasn't like a young guy or anything like that. So anyway, I showed up and thankfully I knew the, the piano player a little bit. And it's this guy, man, and his name is John Jay, and he's actually the owner of the Free Man. I found out later, and he's a real character, man. He sets this drum set. He plays drums and he sings. And he sets his drums in the front of the stage. <laughs> they can be at the front and all the band were behind him. You know, it's the opposite of what that it usually never happens. Never, ever That's happens. Amazing. Right? So I'm like, okay, well, fuck. Like here I am on stage with these guys. I don't know what's going to happen. Behind the drummer. Yeah, behind the drummer. And we're kind of looking at the piano player like, help, you know. He's like, oh, this one's going to be an F. I'm like, okay, F. Okay, good. All right. Thanks. Thanks for your help, you know. <laughs> and, and then uh, and then he goes, okay, we're going to play At Last by um, by Etta James, you know, the beautiful R&B jazz damn. ballad. I'm thinking, okay, cool. And he goes, he goes, you know, it's usually a really slow song. And John, he pulls the microphone up to me. He goes, one, two, one, two, three, four. No, he's rocking Etta yeah. James. Yeah, and he starts smashing the drums and like he's kicking the drums. 
drums and hitting them with his feet and his limbs are flailing everywhere. He's hitting me with his drumsticks, hitting his other people, just going crazy. And he's screaming this Etta James ballad. It's almost like grunge, rock, jazz oh, <laughs> kind of music. Like, and also kind of like surf rock. And, and, the, and the, thankfully the guys in the band, it's a tuba player, a piano player, and me and this drummer and some horn players. And they're kind of being like, four chord they're yelling out what the chords are or whatever <laughs> and uh it was wild man and the party the night would just get crazier and he would just drink um uh miller light miller like light. just like the water so we we all drank miller light <laughs> from the bar and, and play this fucking and it was so crazy man i was just thinking like this is so different from the jazz school music that i spent all these years <laughs> studying like what the fuck is i this? got a master's for this yeah right right it's just so wild i didn't even know what to think about it but you know, people love that shit, man. Yeah. So we're playing, when we're down there, man, on a Friday night, we play from 10.30 to two in the morning. People fucking love it, man. They're getting wasted, they're dancing, they're having a great time. It's a fun, fun environment. It's super fun. Even though it's like not musically like what you get from jazz school or whatever, it's like fun party music. <laughs> Cajun Cafe and Lounge. Yeah, yeah. In Deep Ellum, Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. A couple blocks away from my brother's restaurant in Deep Ellum. So on Main Street. Sick. Dude, yeah. And I told you before that I told my brother about you. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know the free man. That, <laughs> that owner's fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. John Jay, if you ever hear this, man, I love you. That's fucking awesome. He knows awesome. that I love, I love him. He knows it. <sighs> You know, I mean, it was just all cool, just like historically. Like, I'm from Denton. That's, uh, you know, 45 minute drive that's north. That's way up north. That's, that's right. As far north as you can get in Dallas. Yeah, DFW. Yeah, DFW, exactly. So, but I would drive down there, and the way that the route that you take, you know, you get off the highway onto Commerce Street, you go through the Grassy Knoll. That's yeah. a historic area. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Some uh, Someone got shot over Some there. Shit I heard. went down there, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it has a very important place in American history. It does, man. It does. It's, it's cool, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about JFK. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but no, man, it was cool being down there. And I started doing that gig or I was doing that gig off and on sort of subbing, just getting involved with that. And also playing with this, the, the hot hops, the, the Asian, you know, New Orleans jazz band at the same time. We had a weekly gig. And it's funny how music music works because no gigs last forever. Mm. It's always evolving and always changing. And that's one thing you got to sort of get on board with. If you're going to be a musician. If you think you're going to play with the same person forever, ain't going to happen, you know? Yeah. And if you do, you're like extraordinary lucky. I don't know if that's lucky or not because right. the benefits of trying new things are, are good too. So anyway, I had this nice gig with, the, with this, this um, Asian New Orleans band, whatever. And then when, it, when we lost that gig after, you know, a three-month run or whatever, I got, I got a call like the, the next day from a country singer asked me to play regularly at the same time um, on Monday, Monday morning 
or my, sorry, Monday night at Adair's, and that's that's next door to to the Freeman. So the Freeman is like it's kind of like a black club, more more black mm-hmm. audiences. Whereas Adair's is very much a country bar. It's like a white a white mm-hmm. club, but the, the the walls are are shared. So when I'm playing at the Freeman, I can hear at the same time the country band playing next door, Ooh, yeah, and vice versa, and vice versa. So it's funny how when I dropped the um the Freeman gig, I started doing the country gig, and I did that gig for about six months, and there was like an R and B band playing at the same time. So I would be hanging with them, and you know we would mix and mingle between sets or whatever, but and then as soon as I dropped that gig, I got another gig at the Freeman. <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh, that's crazy. I was always there at least once a week. Yeah, fun place. That's some diversity right there. It is, man. Yeah, I can't no believe doubt. that Asian band. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in this historically black neighborhood next yeah. to a white country club, and that's America, man. I yeah. love that about America. I think like Nova Scotia is changing now, but when I was growing up, it was very, very just the white. Everyone was the same. All the old people looked like my parents. You know, all the older <laughs> people looked like my grandparents. There was no diversity at all. So that's one thing that I really, really loved about living in Texas, man. It was like there's every, all kinds of people, and you know, being able to play these different styles of music with different communities really value that experience. I think people don't really understand that, right? Because, you know, the stereotype in the U.S. is that Texas is very white, but Dallas is something different. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's changing every single day, too. There's so much stuff going on there. It really is awesome. And, like, it was cool as a Canadian. I'm, I'm an outsider, right? So I could play these country gigs where I'm surrounded by all these, like, super conservative white country musicians, and I could be on the road with a you know, all African-American um, smooth jazz group. And, I, and I'm spending lots of time with all of them and really valuing experience. And, and then I'm hearing their political views and, and their opinions about world politics and what's going on in America. And I can just like take it in and it's like, I can learn from it all. Yeah. And I, one thing that I took away or how it changed me coming through that experience is was, man, I don't take anything like at face value anymore. So if, especially about politics, if someone mm. says like, this is how it is, like, yeah. it's like this, I'm like, no fucking way. Exactly, man. dude. Yeah. You're not jazzy enough. Yeah, man. Like, <laughs> Mix it up. <laughs> one of the guys that I met on the, on the cover band scene was this dude and he was a bass player and he was doing the thing and a chemistry teacher during the day, but he, he had a, like a Western philosophy doctorate degree. So he had studied like all like the, you know, Western philosophy, that whole thing. And somehow came out of it being like the most conservative person ever, like Christian conservative. But what, but I could hear him talk and I could ask him, so like, what's the general like consensus of, from the conservative community or whatever on this subject? Or what about mm. on this subject? And I could ask him and he would be, because he was so smart and he was so well read, he come up with a very clear, coherent description of whatever the thing was. It's like, it's nice to be able to hear that. And instead of just being like, oh, you're stupid because you believe this. You right, know? right, 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 right. And then I can go back with the, the church folks who, who are totally different and they can have a very clear, coherent view of how they see things. And I can just draw from both of them. And it's really, really yeah, cool. That's crazy. Yeah. Where are these... Uh Japanese and Taiwanese musicians fit into this. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're there too, man. They're, they're like me, man. They're just riding, riding the high, man, yeah. trying to have the experience. Like two of the Japanese guys in that band, they're back in Tokyo now. And one of them moved back during the pandemic, another one before. The other, other Japanese guy, he's like, uh, he's like, this dude is like, man, like four feet tall. And he can't speak a word of English. And he's even been, been in Dallas for like, a, you know, since then he still stayed there. Uh, so it must be maybe, you know, eight years or whatever. And he's killing it in the R&B scene. He's getting oh, called on really? all the R&B. He, he can't even talk to his bandmates. And he's like way shorter than all of them. But man, he just, this but dude he's is smooth. so. Yeah. He's got the rhythm and blues. He does, man. His name is Kazu, Kazu Tanaka. And he, huh. this, this dude, he just shows up, man. Like when he was in school at UNT, like every night he's going to go drive an hour down to Dallas. He's going to be at the R&B jams. He's going to be there with his trumpet. And if they ask him to play, he will sit on it on stage and play whether he knows the music or not. He just kept doing it over and over and over again. And then you get, see him playing with heavy, heavy cats and torn and really? stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's dope. Yeah, man. I respect that a lot. Yeah, 100%. 
Yeah. Having some balls to just go out and just do it. A lot of music is just, you just got to, it's kind of cliche, but um, you just got to show up. Yeah. Because it's scary. The reality is it's scary. Yeah. So the thing about it, yeah, I read a quote from Customato. That's Mike Tyson's trainer. Mm -hmm. He said, oh yeah. He said, the coward and the hero, they feel the same, but what changes them is their actions. Yeah, that's so that's so Mike Tyson philosophy too, yeah, right? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, because Mike Tyson was was bullied when he was young, right? Yeah. I mean, he was a small little kid with a high voice, a lisp, and everything, but Customato just took him, turned him into a monster. Yeah, that's right, the, yeah. The youngest heavyweight champion of the world up yeah. in Catskills, New York. That's right, uh, yeah, that's cool, man. I'm so, so into, into his story. It's really great. So for me, like, do I consider myself you know, brave or whatever for doing what I did, showing up to all these gigs and all these different communities and being around all these people. Like you never know who you're going to be around. You know, you'll do these gigs. We don't know anyone. And with all these communities, like bravery was never a part of it because it was just, I didn't have a choice. Mm. And when you're, when you're, when you're starting from nothing in those situations, there's not an option to, Oh, I don't really feel like it. I don't want to, like, I'm just going to stay home and you know, mommy will give me 20 bucks or whatever. No, fuck that. I'm in Texas. I got nothing. I got no money. This is the gig, and it pays this amount of money. This is style of music. Can I get there? I don't know. Can I play the music? I don't know. Like, is it the appropriate amount of money? I don't, it doesn't matter. I got mm. to show up and be there. And that, like, level of need allowed me to do things that I wouldn't have done otherwise, I think. I'm just grateful for it in, in the end. Man, I love that story because I think that also segues perfectly into your kind of shift from that world, right? You went from Nova Scotia jumped into this totally different world of Dallas. Mm -hmm. And then what we just alluded to is you upended all of that and moved halfway around the world to Taiwan and kind of started the thing over again. (laughs) Yeah, genius. (laughs) (laughs) You brave motherfucker. (laughs) I don't know, man. It ain't bravery, man. It ain't bravery. It might be something. Something Some other other adjective. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're the adjective guy, (laughs) man. (laughs) Exactly. I gotta hire you to write some adjectives, man. Holy jumping. Oh, man. Okay, so so what is that? What, what was that jump, man? Why did you make this brave jump, you <laughs> brave heart of a young man? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but well, this time I wasn't, I wasn't, I don't know how young I was, you know, at, the, at this point. It wasn't as abrupt as it sounds because mm. um, while I'm doing these things and I'm playing in church and I'm teaching in a school and going to Deep Ellum and playing all this different music, I'm also like, you know, meeting some people from Taiwan at that time, you know, and a girl and I just started to get interested in Taiwan, maybe around starting around 2017 hmm. and slowly getting into the language. And that, that sort of interest in Taiwan and the and Chinese language sort of became an obsession at one point. It sort of evolved. Like I would have like a plan. Of, I'm going to study some Chinese and I would just quit, you know, after a couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. then you know, months would go by and I would think get into it again. And eventually I came here and I visited and I studied some Chinese, you know, and then I went home and I was I'm going to study more and I would quit. But eventually after time goes by, I just got obsessed with it. I got so into Chinese and I was like, I would literally like be coming home from my gig and I would pull over on the side of the road to do Duolingo, you know, before mm. I got home or I would just drive around to boba tea shops in DFW. If I was <laughs> going, if I, my gig is at a certain place, I would find a boba tea shop on the way so I could practice my Chinese, you know, no on the way. way. Yeah, yeah. Or go to a Chinese restaurant or something like that. And it would be awkward sometimes because I would go in and it would be marketed as a Chinese restaurant, but everyone works there is from exactly. Vietnam. <laughs> exactly. No one speaks Chinese. So I'd be like, ni hao. And they'd be like, what? Like, toma. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Oh. Got burned with that one many times. But yeah, and I was like, you know, going to all the stopping at stores, trying to buy all the Chinese textbooks that I could find. And I got really into it. 
and, and also at the same time, my, 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 my ex-wife now, but my wife at the time was, was Taiwanese and, and she was a singer. So we, um, you know, we had, we formed a band called song dynasty mm. and we were playing. The goal was to take her, you know, experience in Taiwan and, you know, her the whole thing of, of Taiwan and mix it with jazz and R and B and pop music that we were playing in Texas. So we did that. We wrote songs and arrangements and did covers of music from Taiwan. You know, we composed music and we eventually recorded an album called uh, song in Jedi. Uh, it's called searching and you can find it on Spotify or whatever. Mm. But yeah, we, we really were into that. And what was cool about it is because, we talked about how Texas is this melting pot of all these different cultures. So that music, it actually, it flew there. People liked it. Mm. We, we had an audience there. We, we played a lot of shows. You know, we had a really great CD release party. We were nominated for the best jazz act in Dallas. You know, so oh, damn. I nice. now that I live in Taiwan, I look back on that. I think that's really cool. It's like we were playing music from Taiwan. Some of the songs were in, in Kujiahua. Some were in Taiyu, some were in Mandarin, you know, and, Whoa. and we had an audience and literally the mainstream, like, that that whole scene that has this R and B influenced jazz and the jazz scene in Dallas, like Deep Elm, that whole scene, they mm. they embraced it. We could play down there for like an audience that's mostly black people that are all getting drunk on a Saturday night at, at one in the morning. We can play like our tunes that are like R and B grooves, but with like Kujiahua. That's crazy. Yeah, it flew. <laughs> Also singing in English, or was it all a little bit, but mostly if Lee's singing, it's going to be in Chinese. I mean, even though she she no, we sang, she sang in Chinese, English too, but mostly it's other languages. She's fluent in English, right? So it's always a girl. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to sing, dude. What, come on, man, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> no, what I was actually talking about was the oh, to come introduction to Taiwan. To Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dongren. Yeah, so is that's the reason. Yeah, Taiwanese girls are beautiful. That's true. Can't yeah. deny it. Unfortunately, Taiwanese girls, dangerous. They are. You'd be careful. Helping to save Taiwan one woman or one man at a time. Yeah, yeah. But it was funny, like in, in North Texas, like at the school, there was a bunch of Taiwanese girls, like, you know, that I was friends with or whatever, you know. Mm. That's how they, is that must be the plan. Is that like a government policy? Like I send them out is. there it looking is. all pretty and shit. Yep. Uh, yep. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Works have, like a charm. You have been trapped, sir. Yep. No complaints, man. I like it here. Yeah, man. All right. So what was that like, man? Just upending that flying to Taiwan. Was that your first time to Asia? Well, I no, I I'd been I'd spent a month here a few years earlier, so but yeah, so I guess my point that I was trying to get to was like I had been involved, been engaged, and we were going to sort of Chinese culture events in Dallas and t meeting the Taiwanese community. So I wasn't like totally weird that I would just do that. Mm. Um, but it was hard, man. I'm not going to lie because I really loved. That's where I made myself. You know, that's who, who I am today. It was crafted in that part of the world. So to just say goodbye. And like I had so many good friends there. I, st I still do. Really hard to say goodbye to the gigs and also the, the community of people. I had a, some some Canadian friends there that were really close, so it was really hard. And also the church. So basically, pandemic hit. Lee took off to Canada, and she stayed with my family for a few months as I sort of like gathered myself to take off. And 
I did that and we had a wild, wild going away party at a, at a nice um, strip club or whatever. Ooh, and then, nice. uh, <laughs> and then, and then the next day, literally I had a gig at, at the Freeman Cajun cafe and we played until one o'clock in the morning. And then I had to leave. My flight was at like seven or something. Oh, yeah. you went out hard. I went out hard. And thankfully my band, my buddies are, are like my ride or die friends. They came back to my house and they helped me pack up all my shit and in over the nighttime oh, that's dope. until about five in the morning. And then I took off. Yeah. And then, so what about Taiwan, man? What so, yeah, you, now we're here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is like the height of the pandemic. Yeah. Or so, I mean, before, because obviously the height, you wouldn't have been able to get here. But you came here before the pandemic no, 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 or no. before I, they closed the borders? I was married. Oh, so okay. I had no problem getting in. I see. Yeah. Okay. But so it was 100% the height of the pandemic. This was November 2020. Oh. Yeah, so it was wild, man. And, and when I think back on it, like there was this perception of Taiwan that it was just so open. It's a pandemic. It's so open. And there's all this news about how Taiwan is doing so great in the pandemic, which is true. But for a freelancing person, ask a cab driver mm. if they felt that way. <laughs> yeah, true. Not, no, the average Taiwanese cab driver at that time is they're going to be struggling, right? And it's the same with musicians. So the challenge for me was that I didn't have any anything else to base it off. I'd been here before. So I had an idea. I figured I would get some calls. There'd be some gigs. There'd be some stuff happening for me. And things are still open in Taiwan, so it's going to be okay. But it, it, was, it wasn't like that. It was hard. It was mm. hard to find work, man, at that time. There was not a lot of stuff. There was stuff going on, but, man, people weren't making money. Dude, that must have been scary. I mean, talking about that courage and bravery, right? And It was you scary. finally do it. You get on a plane. You're here. And your wife at that time was actually back in Canada as well. So you came here by no, yourself. No, we came, I, I met her in Canada. Oh, okay. We came together. Okay, yeah. so you actually came together. Yeah. But, oh, man, so how was that first couple of months? Were you regretting life? Were you regretting life decisions at that time? Or Yeah, it was, it was hard, man. It was hard because, like, I have perspective on it now looking back. But, mm. like, it was this feeling of, like, I'm struggling. This is difficult and hard. And I don't know if it's ever going to get better because I didn't know that it was ever going to be any different or ever was any different because it's all that I knew. So yeah. it was almost like it's like I'm struggling, but it must be my fault. Right. But it actually was just there was just nothing going on. Yeah. But I did play. I met some made some connections. I met some cool people. I, I joined the TPO Taipei Professional Orchestra Big Band. Mm. Did some work with them, and then you know, and then things started to really shut down when when they started to let COVID in. People were getting it, and that lot lost a lot of work there. But I, but I did things in in those first two years. But then since like COVID has sort of ended in Taiwan, in back in October, things have been really moving forward mm. in a fun way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dennis kind of mentioned that, that you're touring around Taiwan. You're playing with some pretty big musicians as well, doing some really interesting stuff here. So, yeah, it's it's awesome. Yeah. Like there's a lot, a lot of cool people here for sure. There's some cool foreigners here and some cool folks that are just in the scene. Yeah, it's it's been cool. I did a tour, actually. Sort of what got me started the post-pandemic Taiwan for me was I, I did a tour. I got a call from Riverside Music Company uh, in Gongguan. And they wanted to see if I could play at, a, at the Taipei Jazz Festival. And I had played at the Taipei Jazz Festival, Taichung Jazz Festival, Dadao Zhang Festival the year before, too. This time they're asking me to do it under my own name, my own project. Mm. Okay, sure. And I was like, well, can I bring my buddies from Dallas? Mm, <laughs> I asked them. And we sort of negotiated back and forth. We talked about it or whatever. Finally, we, we sort of made it, found a way to make it work. And I invited them to come. And it was like still things were, there was still a three-day quarantine at that time. But I'm, I'm telling my boys, I'm like, you guys want to come? And, and for a foreigner, the chance to come here and, you know, play, make it maybe a little bit of money. Like, that's a great thing because they don't know about Taiwan. It's this exotic, cool, exciting place. Mm. So Taiwanese people don't understand that. People here don't get it. But having the chance to just to come here is a huge right. privilege. Yeah, especially from Texas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and one guy came from Japan. So one okay. from Japan and the other from Texas. But it was like, 
just to create an opportunity for them to come here was was really I think a, a thing that they were really really grateful for. Hmm. And people might think that I, people thought that I was crazy because there's still a quarantine. Like there's not a lot of money on the line here. Like it's just stupid. But the reality was like man, they had an amazing time. Hmm. So what I did is I I had the Taipei Jazz Festival and then I did another a really good clinic at uh, the Riverside Music Music School and then I booked a bunch of series of gigs all around the island. We played Taizong Jazz Festival as well. We went to Tainan. We um. We played a bunch of all the clubs around Taipei, and like my guys were here for a couple of weeks, man, and they had a freaking blast. And their, and their level is so high; like these guys can play at such a high level that it's it's much higher than the average level of what's going on in the scene here. Mm. So for them to be here, people were really grateful. They had a good time. They they could hear these great musicians, you know, and it was really a really went off well. So how was that tour around Taiwan like? It was awesome, man. So because of the quarantine thing. So two of the guys arrived and they quarantined, and the other guy he couldn't make it until a day later, so he had to quarantine and miss the first two shows of the tour. But um, it's funny because as soon as they finished his quarantine, the next day they canceled the quarantine. <laughs> so the oh, timing shit. was not right, but, <laughs> but we had no choice. Right. So anyway, we got a local drummer named Jimmy Chen, really awesome guy who I know from Oklahoma. He was in Oklahoma when I was there, so mm. he joined us and me and two the piano player and the bass player. We drove down. And we, we played Taichung Jazz Festival. We just had such a great time, man. Like we played that we were the headlining act. We played the last um, the last show of the first night, so it was a really great spot. It was totally packed, and people were really grateful for the music down there. And then afterwards, we had just the funnest time. Like we went to this little random little Rochow place, and, mm. and I think the, the 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 average age was sixty five. I think yeah, the, the people that were out. there, yeah, yeah. But it's, and there was us and with my foreigner buddies who were completely fresh on the boat. And they were just feeding us beer and just all this food. We ate this huge meal, and they were just the regular people there were just being totally fun with us. Dude, and that's the best place to take people from outside is, of Taiwan. Man. It is. My friends were just like, "This is unbelievable! Yeah. Like, this is the coolest place ever!" Exactly. <laughs> like doing the, the karaoke and whatever, man. They were just totally blown away. They were like, "Man, this is the coolest place like in the world." And this is October in Taichung. The weather's beautiful. That was amazing. So these guys are just totally in love with the island. And from there, we go from. Taizong to Tainan, where I know a guy in Tainan. He's a dentist, and he's a a not jack. a gynecologist. No, no, a no dentist. That, that, that was Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I've, I've moved up in the world. I, think. I know. I, evolved from gynecologist to dentist. Nothing against gynecologists. At right, all. right, right. Exactly. <clears throat> but there's Respect. this. But there's this dude I met. He was a student of mine. I taught the year prior at um, the Coast Swing uh, Jazz Jeans Spring Camp the previous year. So he was a student of mine, but he's a dentist. And uh, he's really into jazz organ. He's like an enthusiast. Mm. So my band in Texas uh, that I ran before I left, it was like based around the jazz organ. That was our thing. And we did that in Deep Ellum at the, the Freeman. So I've come in contact with this guy who's really into jazz organ in Taiwan. And he's a dentist. So he has the resources. So he actually bought a, a Hammond organ from the 1960s and a oh. Leslie speaker. And he had them shipped from California to Taiwan and that costs ten thousand dollars. That's like not a no way. That's not a cheap piece of equipment. And it's also it's huge and it's heavy. You can't move it. It's like you need a moving um, company if you want to move this organ. But that's the sound, man. If you're into soul jazz, which is like my favorite genre of music, mm. <clears throat> that's the sound of the music. And also in gospel, you got to have a Hammond organ. It's like yeah, you need part that of the organ. music. And these keyboards that simulate that, like it's not the same. Mm. This dude has a real has his own organ. ham and organ. And this dude can't even play the organ. He just owns one. Are you serious? Yeah. That's he's, crazy. Yeah, he's like an amateur guitar player, you know. So anyway, he's really cool. So he created this gig at his church. He's a Catholic and he, he goes to this Catholic church and they let us use their youth center in Tainan. So we set up the organ outside at the, at the youth center and then we, he had these vintage guitar amps from the United States, set those up and my buddy Jimmy came and set up his drums. We threw a little party 
outside in the middle of the day um, outside of this uh, church um, youth center in Tainan, and it was so fun. We were playing like real, you know, soul jazz on the, on the real authentic gear, that Hammond organ. You know, even if you're in the U.S., it's not easy to find those. Mm. So, so it was really fun. Beautiful, sunny day. It was a really great time. And all in Taiwan, of all places. Right? Yeah, exactly. Another amazing uh, image, I think. Yeah. With that organ, too. That oh. just makes everything perfect. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Yeah. Any uh, bad experiences on this? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, just a uh, random question. But any, any, uh, everything sounds great. But he's getting. I'm getting trapped here. <laughs> <laughs> Was it uh, all smooth sailing, or were there some clouds? Well, thanks for thanks for asking. It was not <laughs> smooth sailing. Really? Oh, no. All right. Well, have a candy and uh, have a candy. We'll go there. <laughs> okay. So yeah, man, uh, it was not. So th- this what the scene that I'm describing is like the most beautiful time. You get your best friends in the world who you haven't seen in two years. They're, they're you're with them. You know, you're you're playing amazing music. You're like playing just the style you like with the, your your favorite people, and it's the most beautiful weather. All these great things about it. <laughs> so then we we drive back from Tainan, back to Dallas, and. Uh, <laughs> And that's the end of my marriage. <laughs> so I paid a heavy price for my tour. There was a little disagreement about where the guys were going to stay um, that first night. We had a spot in Linko and a spot in Taipei, and it was kind of like we we're already in Linko. We'd already been driving all day. Had a little disagreement about that, and I said, "No, okay, no worries. We'll, we'll go. We don't need to stay in Linko today. We'll drive down to Dallas tonight." And then, and then the next day, my my wife said, "I don't want to talk to you anymore." And I had to play with her the next day, and she wouldn't talk to me. And, um, oh, and basically, we didn't we dude. didn't speak again, and no. in, a, in a real in a real normal way since then. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. It's I mean, crazy. going on this amazing trip with your boys from Dallas, yeah. another dude from Japan, and then while you're on the tour, yeah. it all just crumbled. It blew up in my face. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, Shit. my guys were, were barely there. So I had to take care of them too, you know? So we came to Taipei. She's in Linko. And I'm just kind of thinking, okay, whatever. It's going to blow over. And just a little, little, little small disagreement or whatever. And then we, uh, <laughs> so I'm with the guys and it's like from there on we're working every single day so I kind of like I'm trying to talk to her a little bit on messenger or maybe the occasional phone call but she said I don't want to talk to you so I'm kind of like, okay whatever you, you know do your thing and I'll, right. I'll just take care of my guys and we're working every single night working every night and then finally we get more towards the end of the tour and it's been maybe about a week or you know something and I say listen I gotta go back to Lincoln I gotta get my suit jacket and she goes nope doesn't matter I've already packed up all your stuff we're moving all your shit out today and they took all my stuff and moved it out no way yeah. while was, my guys were here you know in the tour it was that hard that abrupt yeah too. yeah yeah, yeah. Fuck. i had no idea it was coming you know dude yeah and then basically becoming homeless i mean Not homeless, well, you had a place we but. had this place we had like my my music practice space in, in taipei so i just i just stayed there you know 
<sighs> Shit, man. It was harsh, man. Yeah, for sure. You also mentioned that you had to play the next day with her. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that basically it went <laughs> down. So crazy, man. So they dropped all my stuff over, and I came home from a rehearsal, and there she is with my buddies at the house, and her parents just loading all my shit out, you know. Oh, you literally saw them too. Yeah, like, I, I walked in. I watched it happen. I just, I just stood there. I'm and like, okay. No one's like making eye contact, and I talked to her dad, just casual, like, "How you doing?" You know. <laughs> and I just, yeah, I just tried to be How's cool. The weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you serious? Well, I, I said, you know, uh, he said, I was, he, he's actually was very empathetic. I was like, yeah, "How you doing?" He's like, "Honestly, not too good." <laughs> so it was whatever. Whoa. But it was harsh, man. It was definitely painful. And then the next day, and then so I had to go do my gig after that. So I'm so busy, you know, at this time. So I go to the gig, and I'm freaking out. I'm like, maybe it's still just not a big thing, you know? Maybe it's right, gonna blow right. over. So I get home and I call her and listen, what's going on here? Just tell me what's happening here. And she goes like, I'm done with you. I want a divorce, you know, whatever. Oh, she just says that right there too. Yeah. Yeah. So then then I'm like, okay, that was harsh, you know? And then the next morning I wake up and I had a message. So anyway, what tunes do you want to do in the gig tonight? (laughs) So I had to arrange the set list, you know? That's crazy. How was performing? How was that? night of performing where'd you guys perform it was hard man um it, we, we jazz in kaohsiung so okay me and, me and the drummer from japan we, we went down on the hsr to kaohsiung and she went some other way and we met her on the gig but man yeah it was one of the challenging experiences of my life and that's one of the things that i'm grateful for about going through this experience is because i've learned so much it's like it's almost invaluable mm. so like having the experience of going okay i gotta see i'm like obviously i'm heartbroken like you, you can't believe right yeah and then and then but i gotta go there and then we gotta do a sound check and i gotta be like, okay let's run this section okay well, which lee you want to do the next song okay how you want to do it and we'll discuss a little bit with her discuss with the band we'll run it okay sound check do the gig and she's doing tunes like cry me a river and like oh, no. you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Tunes like that, and also tunes that are very close to us that we from our album that we work together on, you know. So it's in Texas, yeah, the song Dynasty, yeah. So it's very like it's very difficult, but you know, but I got to be cool, and that's all I can do. Just be cool, just take it, you know, and just be like, okay. Next tune, all right. Next song, no worries. Yo, yeah. that's true professionalism right there. Yeah, no, no, no choice. So we do that, man. The next day we we play at Yuppie, um, so we had another gig the next day, and then we did one more on Sunday, and that we did, so we did three shows. Back to back. Yeah, yeah. But right with after. Yeah, yeah. And all I can do is just be cool. And it's kind of like, um, I had a friend gave me gave me some uh, some advice. He just said, you know, all I can do is take take the loss, take the L, man, and people people will, uh, if you can take it, then people will, will, will value that. And at least I can value it. Just be able to take the take the L and just be like, okay, cool. Oh man, I mean, how'd you get through that shit though? Um, I don't know. I just did it. Showed up. <laughs> Same with those gigs in Texas yeah, when you're when you're scared. Right. You know, just starting out. You just got to show up anyways. It doesn't matter how you feel. You got to go do it. So that's what I did. Well, it's good you put in that work in Texas. Then I mean, <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't have all that experience and this happened to you when you were young, like I mean, I could see any young man like just flipping out in that kind of situation. Yeah. Like that's that's a lot, man. And and in another country you know like yeah yeah that was terrifying yeah i didn't know what was going to happen i thought do i have to leave now like what's what do i do now like am i gonna get deported like i don't know you know i, I had no idea it was ter- it was terrifying uh, right legally and all this shit while you're having to play music yeah truly terrifying but music is emotion right and so feeling these strong emotions and going through difficult things like in the same time as that you're playing like that's a there's also some beauty in that too you know mm. like being able to play and like feel it because the whole tour i was heartbroken Beside those first two two shows, I was completely heartbroken the whole time, and I had to play every single time. You know, and it's like and I played my I played my heart, I played my best, that I tried played the best that I could, and I and I was in the music, and I was feeling the emotion of the music when I was playing. Ah, oh, dude. Yeah. I'm gonna cry a river right now. <laughs> Shit. 
Yeah. Oh man, do you think you played the best you've ever played? Maybe. Um, I don't. I don't know about that, but I, yeah. I, I really, really was present with the music. You know, I felt it. You know, for sure. Yeah, it was. It was wild. So after that, I mean, so what happened to your kind of legal situation? It was tough because, because like, basically, she didn't even want to talk to me at all. So I was kind of like, well, we have to talk. She just said, "Listen, I'll wait for you to get a new visa," but she said, "Can you do it the next week?" And it was like, man, it was, for one, I was too heartbroken to do anything. Oh, for sure, man. Let alone do the um, do the difficult task of getting the new visa. But but Dealing anyway, bureaucracy here is difficult enough as it is. That's right. Not yeah. a broken heart. Yeah. So basically, like that was October, and then November is basically just me just like trying to get myself together. And then December, we'd already booked a series of gigs, so I had to play with her again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We played at Taipei 101. We did a whole month long series of like twice a week. Oh, no. That was harsh, man. Yeah, it was tough. But that's another thing. It's training and, like, stoicism. You know, you got to show up. Yeah, 100%. And, and what I would do is oh, get ready to go to the gig, and I would, in my mind, I would walk myself through it. What's going to happen? Like, when I walk up there, I'm going to get on stage, got to see certain people. But also because, like, you know, she's kind of a public figure, mm. right? And, and, and so this thing was very, very public, and everyone in the music community knew about it. So I thought maybe, like, I was going to get, like, X like what's the word extradited or kicked out of the community for right, it. Like, I, I didn't know. Yeah, I, I was afraid that that was going to happen. So I basically just hung to myself and Shindian did my own thing and just tried to get myself together. And then I got to roll into type A and do all this work. And uh, I basically just planned out in my mind how I'm going to react, what I'm going to do and, you know, sort of imagine it and just go and just go on and play the guitar. That's what I did. Yeah, I mean, you got to be prepared for everything, right? Like yep. people coming up to you, asking you questions. I'm sure that happened a lot. Yeah, and people were cool, man. You know, I turns I was actually, man, honestly, man, like I was... I was worried about the whole situation, how it's going to play out as far as my standing in the music community because it's such a public thing, uh, unfortunately. But, it, man, I was really, 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 really grateful and humbled by the response that I got. Mm. Basically, everyone just basically just, like, supported me in getting through this difficult situation. And, man, that was comes back to the gold card thing, right? So yeah. now it's like, okay, December goes by, and I got through the gigs, and some time has passed. Two months. For, for a marriage, seven-year marriage, Two months isn't very long, right? Right. But it's what what it was, and I was feeling like, okay, cool. I'm getting on on the ball with this, and then I, with help from Dennis Chang. Yes, he helped me a lot with the visa stuff, and then I just got into the community and I reached out to everyone around and got you know the recommendation letters, got the whole thing together, and like pull this application together process together. Yeah, every day I'm like going to the coffee shop, working on my visa application. You know, and meanwhile getting this really heavy pressure, just trying to sort of block it out and just keep working. And yeah, it all worked out, man. I got the visa two weeks after I applied or less than two weeks after I applied. Really? Yep. yep, yep. I, had a, I had a killing application, man. It was oh, really good. Shit. Like people like high status cats in the music community were right. no, no problem. Vouching right. for you. Yeah, yeah. So it was fine. Oh, dude. And I was so grateful. Yeah. I mean, thank God. I mean, that's an amazing ending to that story. Because yeah, yeah. Oh, it <laughs> yeah, was awesome, I was, man. I was, I'm getting depressed over here, but. Yeah, right. No, no, it was beautiful, dude. And like and now <sighs> it's like, when you go through something like that, too, it's like, um, you know, I talked about the challenges of, of getting in, you know, moving to Taiwan during a pandemic and getting into the scene and getting things going. But then when you go through something that's a challenging situation like that, you really, um, it changes your perspective. You see the whole mm. world differently. So it's like maybe any little struggles or, or worries or fears or um, problems I might have had in the past, they all of a sudden are gone. Doesn't yeah. even matter compared to that exactly. challenge. Like, who cares? The fact that those the the, the cars kind of cut you off on the street or whatever doesn't matter anymore, man. I love it now, you know. Exactly. So you have to go to Wisconsin. No problem. No problem. Gynecologist, bring no, it on. No problem. Yeah. But no, man. I like. I'm I'm really grateful to be here and to come out the other end of that whole situation in Taiwan. You know, on my own and just really like get to um you know be grateful for this whole country and all that it has to offer. 
Oh man, I'm excited for it. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. Man. And now you're you're performing all over the place. Yep. You have good friends. Yep. We hung out as well. This last weekend, we went hard with the coconut water. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, we, we were crushing coconut water. Exactly. I like hanging out with Kane because he can he can go pretty hard, go late into the night, but we're not we're drinking coconut water. So the next morning, <laughs> you can still wake up and practice. No problem. Exactly, exactly. That's where it's at, man. That's the way to do it, man. Oh, man. Okay, so speaking of that, man, you have a show coming up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so this Sunday, April 23rd. Yeah, that's right. Sunday, April 23rd at the Yuppie Bookstore cafe otherwise known as the art reading cafe is that correct i guess so yeah i've never been to that place but i i looked it up and it looks super cool yeah man you should definitely come if you get a chance it's uh percent i think it's it's you know one of the best jazz club experiences in taiwan it's really cool like uh, you got to reserve your seats and you get it you get it there's a meal and there's live music and it's in this building that's kind of like a circular building and in the walls are still the concrete so it feels like you're in a castle this circular castle windows and it's, it's really a cool interesting room and and they have usually the highest highest quality jazz music there it's fun and usually it's it's you know people are really listening and paying attention when you're playing so it's fun as a performer to play mm. there. yeah nice one of the best spots yeah. So what are some of the good kind of jazz places or places that you play at? Um, and then what about the Taiwan jazz scene, you know, in general? What what are your kind of takeaways, your feelings so far? Yeah, well, so some of the spots, I mean, I play uh, I have really lucky as soon as the pandemic, um, the first shutdown ended in, in Taipei. When was that? Like in May or something of 2021, I believe I got a, a regular residency at Blue Note which mm. is a really cool club on uh, Shidalu. It's a uh, yeah. Blue Note is uh, one of the most famous record labels, jazz record labels, and that and that same name and uh, and sort of like visuals were, were used to create a, a chain of, of restaurants called Blue Note that are all over the world, starting in New York. There's exactly. one in Shanghai, West Tokyo, Third Street, baby, Beijing. Yeah, man, it's a, mm-hmm. one of the best clubs. But the funny thing about that is that the Blue Note Taipei is actually the first one. <laughs> they use the same name, to use the same sort of imagery. It's it was before that that New York one. Really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. And and later on that that chain they wanted to buy like make a franchise out of the one in Taipei and the owner was just like very staunch like no this is my club and I do it my way and he didn't do it. Yeah, that's why they're not connected. They're right? not connected. Yeah, because yeah. you won't find that on the website. Like, no, no. They won't say Taipei. No, but no. they'll say Japan. Tokyo. You know. Exactly. No you know, way. and it probably would have been good for the scene if that would have happened because that would have brought some outside money and resources right. to bring in some musicians, foreign players. But whatever. I'm really grateful for them because I've been playing there since 2021. Once a month, it's the fourth Sunday of every every month at nine uh, nine p.m. So I've been grateful to have lots. Of, you know, it's my thing, so I can do whatever, and I bring in all sorts of different projects. Currently, I've been doing my my soul jazz project there. Mm. On Blue Note. That's that's one of my favorite places. And, and we talked about Sappho Live. Yeah, a little place bit, is cool. A little bit earlier. That's a good spot. And there's a one called Smexy on. Uh, Min Chung Dong Lu. Yeah, that's, mm. a good, that's a good spot, too. They have jazz every night. Very sexy name. <laughs> it's also a very smart name. Exactly. <laughs> but no, they, they, that's, yeah, if you want to replace it as live music and live jazz every single day, that Smexy and Blue Note and Sappho. And I've also been working on a really cool project in Tianmu. I've been at this school called Blast Up, and we've been putting on live music performances at least twice, sometimes three days a week, you know, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon. We And I've, I've been lucky to curate the... Um, musicians there which is like one thing i talked about in texas i like to hire bands and bring musicians in and find opportunities for musicians i'm doing the same thing in tianmu so we have, we have lots of concerts there and i've had lots of different projects of my own and hire other musicians to come to play so if you if you want to hear like high quality jazz music in tianmu there's nowhere is going to be better quality than it than at blast up mm. guarantee you in, the, in that area 
for mm. sure. There's no other venues near near there. Like I just played with a great singer named Jasmine Chang yesterday afternoon there, and I played with um, a really cool British like funk fusion composer um, on Friday night there. Mm. Yeah, and I'm going to play with a, a German saxophone this coming Friday as well, saxophonist, and a great bass player from Taiwan named Vincent Shu will be playing a blast up on, on Friday. Mm, nice shout out to all these yeah all those cats all these cats cool cats in taiwan taipei yep nice man so what about the taiwan uh, music scene in general yeah so it's just different you know one thing that i think is important to keep in mind when talking about this is um we're just far away jazz mm. is american music it's a thoroughly yeah. american music and of course like there's jazz everywhere in the world and in europe um you know really embraced jazz and, and a lot of like unique um, regional styles of jazz have come from various European places. If you listen to ECM records, there's like a distinct sound that comes from that. But gypsy yeah, jazz with uh, gypsy jazz yeah, with, Dennis. with Dennis, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. But, um, but New Orleans, yeah. But there's New Orleans and New yep. York City and you know L.A. and Kansas City, yeah, Chicago. Kansas City, Chicago, yep. yeah. <laughs> Richland Center, Wisconsin. No, exactly. <laughs> no, no, no. The cow fields of Nashville. Yeah, yeah. No, um, uh, but it's American music, right? And I think that. Like we talk about this melting pot of all the different kinds of people that are, that are in the United States, and that's sort of what created jazz in the first place, and what keeps it going um, mm. now. So I think when you're in a foreign country with its own culture, you're trying to import this music. It's it's obviously it's a challenge. You know, it's never mm. going to be like authentic. Yeah, know? and that's okay. It's just uh, something to keep in mind. Some people try to get really critical about it, and I'm trying not to do that because it's like because we're just far away on an island. Right. <laughs> to keep that perspective, right? Yeah. But what's cool about Taiwan, man, is there's a lot of a lot of um, people coming from different parts of the world that, mm. that end up here and they play. So some people in Taiwan that really work hard. You know, if I'm going to be critical of it, there's a couple of things that stand out. One is that I notice in the music scenes here, they're very, very, like, divided. This is my, my, my feeling. It's a very, like, in their lane. So if you have a straight-ahead jazz musician, he's going to play straight-ahead jazz. Mm. You have, like, a modern, you know, jazz, you know, whatever New York-style player, he's going to be like that. Or if you have, uh, like, um, a pop player, he's going to play pop. Mm. Whereas my experience in the in the U.S. was like, man, you're doing all sorts of gigs all the time. That's what I did, and that's what my friends did. Mm. You don't just, like, stay in your lane. Maybe it would be good to do that, but um, in Taiwan, it's, it's like that. And for my enjoyment as a musician, like, I like to play different styles and mm. different people, and I don't want to be pigeonholed into one thing. And people think of me as a straight head player because i'm certainly not you know mm -hmm. and uh or, or i don't want them thinking me as just like a pop musician because i'm certainly right. not either so it's i want to be a thought of as someone who can do all sorts of different stuff versatile yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's that thing man and then i mean uh, if we're looking for juicy juicy critiques i can have give one more all right let's go juicy well one was maybe this one fried chicken <laughs> yeah well this is the opposite of fried chicken i oh, find yeah. that one of the, the ways that i think the music in taiwan especially jazz could be, be better. And also in, in myself too, is like the, how they perceive rhythm. Like rhythm is, mm. isn't valued in the same way here as it's valued in the United States. Like that. Interesting. It, and also that goes with the connection with dancing. So there's no dancing. Mm. Like when I remember I told you, I played at the free man with these bands with John Jay, the crazy guy and he's drinking and he's, his arms are flailing. People are dancing when he's playing. Yeah. You know, if you're playing just even just like a shitty club date cover band gig in, in the U S people are dancing to that. Right. And so the music that, that is involved. And if you're playing, if the drummer's playing a groove, that's not rock solid the drummer. The dancers are going to stop dancing. So that's the challenge. If you're a band on stage, the chance, how can I keep playing in such a way that's going to keep people dancing? Mm. If I lose my focus, because about rhythm is about focus. You got to stay focused and keep the beat. It keeps happening over and over and over again, one after another. You have to keep focused on that to keep that steady groove going. And if you space out, um, then the dancers will stop. Um, and I learned this lesson the hard way in Texas because I played with some really, really heavy um, like pop 
rock groove players. You know, we would play these parties or we would play these clubs, you know, and if and if I wasn't focusing and I'm playing this like um rhythm guitar, this chanky like you know, whatever, it's mm. gonna go on for an hour while people dance. If I lose focus and I start thinking about what I had right. for lunch or what I'm doing or this is my cat or something like that. A the, divorce or some shit. <laughs> no, I wasn't thinking about that yet. <laughs> yeah, but, not the, yet. but the guys uh the guys will get pissed. The drummer yeah. and the bass player, they'll look at me like, dude, you're ruining our night. Like, right. you know, focus, you know, right. you got to fucking focus on the groove. And, and I learned that lesson the hard way, and it's a really valuable lesson. So sometimes huh. when I hear some players around here where there's no connection with dancing, I don't sense there's that same uh, respect for the beat. Yeah, that's super interesting. Where do you think that might come from? It's just what people care about. It's about values. If you value, maybe in music, there's the three main parts, melody, harmony, and rhythm. If you right. value melody, you value harmony. If you value melody the most, you're going to care about certain kinds of music. If you value there are other things, then you're going to think of something else. If you value rhythm, it's going to be different. Mm. So someone that enjoys hip-hop music, which one of those do they value the most? They're going to value rhythm. Yeah, Because that sure. music is about rhythm. Right. So there's, no, there's usually a loop of the same chord over and over again and no melody. So it's, they don't care about those things. They care about the rhythm. Mm. So if you, and it's the same if you listen to like, um, like some classical music or something like some, maybe some romantic era, era classical music. Maybe it might be harmony or melody that you value the most. And mm -hmm. that's your favorite style. Hmm. So that's where I think it comes from. Do you think it has anything to do with the Chinese language? I don't know. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, man. it's a deep question that I probably can't wrap my head around right now, but Amazing. it's something I've always thinking about, just, you know, how Chinese works. Yeah. You know, kind of tonally and also character wise as well. So I'm just I'm just putting that out there. But well, yeah, well also I mean, I think it's about like cerebral versus physical. Rhythm mm. is very physical. But yeah. harmony is very cere cerebral. Right. So people are interested, oh, what's the new chord and what's this wild chord sound and those things. That's very cerebral. So if you're mm. a kind of cerebral person, you might value those more importantly. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So what about some positive things? Do you foresee any kind of development in these things? Have you been noticing changes, you know, in good ways? Or do you think that some of these things will improve in the future? You know, maybe as COVID disappears and the world opens up or... Or not, possibly. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure, man. Um, one thing mm. is that, like, I, when I taught in the jazz gene camp, I was access to a lot of students, and I was able to share, you know, my perspectives, which are just my perspectives with them. And, and I feel like that was, for me, a really rewarding thing to try and affect some sort of, you know, positive influence based on my experience for them. Um, that was cool, and I taught a class at Suju Kong. I did some similar things. But I think, like, for the most part, for me, I'm just going to try not to worry about it too much, and I'm just going to mm. focus on myself. Yeah. I want to play, and all I can do is is just try my best to play the best that I can play because I'm not I'm not perfect, you know. And thinking about these things, like can rhythm be tighter with certain people? To think about that for me, the response is to go home and do it better myself. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I think that Taiwan, there's like space to start things and try things and experiment, and so I'm going to try and use that to my advantage. Where basically any idea that I have, I've had a chance to try it out in, in public. Whereas in the U.S., things are more sort of set in stone. There's certain kinds of gigs, certain kind of things are happening. It's harder to sort of straight start from scratch in some, in some in some respects. But here it's like all of a sudden you can try things out and mm. experiment. So I'm going to try and take like what I think is important and present that in my own performances. So for instance, if you come to Yuppie on Sunday on the 23rd, that's going to be like my thing, playing music that represents the values that I think is important, the blues or the, the organ, mm. you know, rhythm. There's going to be a drummer and a conga player. It's going to be very rhythmic based music. So that's what I'm going to try and do. And whether or not there's change you know um i don't know man because I, I see people that that sort of maybe are too like colonial and they try and change things too much right. or things like that. And i'm trying to just to sort of step back from that a little bit because i certainly thought that when mm -hmm. i first moved here as well mm -hmm. um 
But yeah, man, I don't know. No, I love that, man. I love that attitude because, you know, I think it's just you and your passion that's infectious yeah. as it is. And, you know, that's what you're best at, right? Doing yourself. Yeah. And I think like just trying to have them, I might say, I'm going to try and give. Like, what right. can I what can I give versus what can I take? And I find a lot of foreigner musicians, they can complain a lot about Taiwan. And I think, like, I well, ask myself and ask them, and so, well, what are you giving here? Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. why don't you give something first and then see if you can get something? Mm. So that's kind of my mentality. And Dennis is really great for that, too. I mean, we had this program at our house, actually. We used to live together, and we called it the Dapping Ling House Sessions. Where we just had little jam sessions, and we charged a very, very small fee. And we just invited musicians to come. And it's basically, it's like, if you're too nervous to go to the jam session at Sappho, come to our house first. And we'll show you step-by-step step from the very, very beginning of how to set yourself to be more comfortable in that environment. And man, it was so cool because all these people came. It was like once a week, there'd be like 10 people over each time. They'd always be different and rotating. And we get the access to a lot of students. And we it was really fun. And, and I find students in Taiwan are really, really good. They're, they're really receptive. Mm. And they really try really hard. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah, yeah there were some... You guys kind of nurtured some uh, pretty amazing musicians too, right? You, Dennis, I think, was mentioning. I think you also mentioned this vibraphonist who was living with you guys. Oh, and, Jack, yeah. Right, and is doing his thing in New York now, right? Oh, yeah, Jack's the man. Jack, if you're out there, I miss you. But no, he's a monster, man. He's a complete freak. And when he, he came to live with us, because he wanted to have the experience of living with musicians that had some more mm. experience than he did, and he had like no experience. He had a classical degree from Beida, but no experience playing jazz, what he wanted to do. But he has an amazing ear, amazing rhythmic sense. This whole rhythmic thing I'm talking about does not apply to him. He oh. knows about rhythm, man. This motherfucker, man. Hmm. He's fucking good. But anyway, so we lived with us, and me and him and Dennis played together like every day and jammed. And, and then, like, by the end of the year, he got accepted to Manhattan School of Music, and now he lives in New York. Oh, man. So Upper West Side. Nice. Super happy about, about him. Oh, that's progress. cool. Yeah. And I had another student, too, that's like, he's a, in his mid 20s, and he, he started, he's an architect. He's great at his job, but he's getting into jazz guitar. He was when I, when I first met him, and he came over once a week for a while, and now he's like booking his own gigs, and I see him all around town doing really, really well, too. So, yeah, mm. there's some, some good players came through our, our little program. Oh, man, I love that. I yeah. really love that. And, yeah, and I think I got a you know a little peek into that at Sappho with you on yeah. Saturday where, you know, you were kind of pointing out all these all these different musicians. You were telling me about them and, like, how you either hire one of them for some of your gigs or that dude's, like, a college student right now, but he's, like, hustling. One guy was an engineer, right? Yep. And his, another guy we met upstairs was actually a Taiwanese-American dude, I think, for uh, Microsoft. Microsoft, yeah, right. yeah. He was amazing, man. Yeah, he was absolutely amazing on the piano yeah and then we found out that he's actually a, a software engineer a programmer yeah. so he's just like hitting the keys yeah you know at work and then turning and hitting the keys on the piano yeah man he was awesome man but that, that's that, that was cool because he was just visiting but like the taiwan music scene is so small we talk about how going to a small college is more like a family and then when you go to a big school it's more like the real world well taiwan it's almost like going back to a family mm. and that's what part of the reason why it made it so challenging to go through a divorce in that environment because everybody knows everything i know the it's family like, it's like your family right but not but it's also beautiful because you know everyone you know yeah. it's, it's it's really fun like and this guy came from New, from california and he was just there for a couple days and he was playing at Sappho. but we have we have connections because his neighbor is tim lynn a, sax, a saxophone player from taiwan that we all know so it's like he's part of the family right away when you, when you get there it's pretty fun you know yeah yeah no doubt oh man i love it man so how long are you gonna be here what do you think man your your gold card i guess is for three years yeah. right so you have at least three years but any kind of long-term goals or ideas about that so far well um no, no, not at mm. all. But I think it's important for me to um, not to run away. So mm. there was a moment there where the, maybe the, the obvious thing might have to do might have been to run. 
but mm. I wasn't going to do that. I was going to stay here. And then, like I said, like when, when you go through a big traumatic experience like that, like the world looks different all of a sudden. So seeing Taiwan in this light, like it's, it's a beautiful place and I want to stay here and I want to see what I can do here, you know, and make sure, see, push it how far I can. So mm. I have no, I've really, honestly, I have no intentions of leaving. I want to go home to visit, but I want to stay here and I want to, I want to ride this thing and do the best that I can to, to create as much cool music as I can to give back in whatever way that I can. And also just it with my friends and my musician people here and play with them and create with them. It's very like in the present way of thinking. And it just goes back to, you know, who I was in high school. I'm sort of staying the present, be with the music, be with the people that I like and just see what that will, what that will take me. Oh man. Point. That's awesome. Yeah. So any Taiwanese single ladies out there? <laughs> all right there it is right there (laughs) amazing amazing all right so before we head out we're gonna do a little fire lightning round of rapid questions firelight since you are the improv king of the universe okay um we're gonna i'm gonna ask you some quick questions please give a quick answer it's gonna be hard for me all right yeah exactly you can elaborate a bit but try to keep it fast then at least lightning round yeah let's go are you ready sir yes here we go number one What's your favorite jazz standard and why? Um, Alone Together, because I can play the blues on it and it's cool. Number two, who are your top three jazz influences and how have they shaped your style? Oh, that's a big question. Grant Green, John Schofield, and you like, yes, Wes Montgomery. Wes Montgomery, because that's iconic. Um, John Schofield, because it's what I liked when I was growing up and he just plays blues and he plays funk and he plays all the other styles that are part of his sound and gospel, whatever. And then Grant Green, because that's just like, it's like the, the essence of what I think is valuable in music. Can you share a memorable moment or story from one of your jazz performances that you haven't said already? <laughs> okay, that's a funny one. Um, I was at a jam session. It wasn't a performance, but a jam. The same jam that we were at actually the other night, but I was playing and I was there with a, a, a drummer and a bass player on stage. And I said, I want to play um, the tune uh, the tune Soul Eyes. And the bass player heard Solar, another song in the same key. So one the one that I called is a slow ballad, the one that he thought was a fast tempo tune. And uh, yeah, it, it took us about a few seconds before we had to stop and start over again. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I need to enunciate more. Exactly. <laughs> that's a great story. What's your favorite jazz album of all time and why does it resonate with you? I mean, kind of blue because it's classic. Can't go wrong. How important do you think collaboration is in jazz music and how do you approach playing with other musicians? See, these are big questions. Um, uh, no, it's the most important thing, man. I wouldn't play music if it wasn't with other people. If I was just going to be at home, I wouldn't even do it. I would do something else. But it's being with other people you know, doing my thing and letting them do their thing and then us just getting through with whatever we come up with. How do you stay creative and continue to evolve as a jazz musician? Um, well, I think that it's just, I think of it like it's my job. I just need to do it every single day and just keep at it. And I use an app called Clockify where I keep all my projects and all my, like, even musical things or things I'm working on. And I just keep track of the time, make sure I spend time on the activities that I want to improve on. How do you approach the balance between structure and spontaneity in your jazz compositions and performances? Oh, oh my God. Well, oh shit. <laughs> That's a hard question. <laughs> Quick. Okay. Um, Two second answer. Okay. Well, simply, um, for me, structure is going to come out as, as language. So it's like there's certain like language that I have as part of 
of me and I, I play that language and then how I vary it, that's, that's the spontaneity. Can you discuss the role of mentorship in your development as a jazz musician and how has it influenced your artistic growth? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> easy question. Yeah, easy question. Well, I mean, it's just so, it's just so, so important, right? Like my teachers back in Canada, my teachers in Texas, like the musicians that I, that I look up to in music scenes that I'm, that I'm involved with, it's, it's so important, you know, and, and, and I really just appreciate everything I've gotten from them and, and I really, really, really try and give back whatever I learned from them, whatever I learned from my experience to other people and really, that's the most uh, rewarding thing is to be able to give back. We're changing course a little bit here. If you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Oh shit, man. <laughs> oh, these are even harder. Yeah, yeah. Like steak. <laughs> yeah, yeah right, that's right. very Texas right there. I love I it. I was gonna say sushi, but then I'm like, maybe I get sick of that. So steak, right. you can't get it wrong with exactly. steak. Exactly, Japanese barbecue. Niwa Japanese barbecue in deep Elm. Yeah. Hit it up. Yeah, exactly. All right. Money, fame, or power, and why? Fuck, man. Well, like, I, I'm thinking about this today, and now how I, I don't really play music for money or fame. That's not the purpose of it. Like, it's just not my main, um, I care about. So I guess that only gives me with power, but that's kind of weird to say. But it's certainly not the other two. Right. Okay. What is the happiest moment in your life? Right now. No. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. I think maybe we'll just go back to those those early days when my career was starting in Texas, those lean years where the money's tight, but um, you're making it, you didn't know you could make it, and all of a sudden it's happening. I was very happy driving those those highways of Texas. Yeah, that was it. What is your favorite animal? Cats. What is the saddest moment in your life? <laughs> yeah, probably, I um, mean, yeah, uh, the divorce thing was pretty hard hard to deal with, that's for sure. Um, my, my grandmother dying, that was obviously pretty tough, but no, I think the divorce was the saddest time for sure. What is something you've always wanted to learn or try but haven't had the chance to yet? Oh, uh, we were talking about this the other night. I want to try Muay Thai. I want to get into kickboxing. Exactly. Be cool. Or and also motorcycle like riding. I'm gonna get into that Ooh, too. Yeah. I'm into that too. So cool. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll be hanging out a bit. Hell yeah. Yeah, let's do it, brother. If you could have a remote control that could pause, rewind, or fast forward any part of your life, how would you use it? Oh, well, it's something me and Dennis talk about a lot, actually. Um, yeah, I think like... I mean, this, this desire to be able to go back and, and use the experience you've learned um, to influence you. So I could go back and just give myself advice in, in the past. I for sure would do that. And I think that's where the value of teaching comes in handy. That's the next best thing. You can't do it for yourself, but maybe you can do it for someone else. Beautiful. What is your favorite place in Taiwan? Dapping Lin. <laughs> that's where I live. I love that place, man. I feels, it feels like home. That's the thing, too. Taiwan never felt home to me. But after I get through this divorce, Dapping Ling is my home. I love the vibe there. It's right by the river. It's like there's some mountains you can hike. It's a great spot. Share a book, movie, or song that has had a significant impact on your life and explain why. Sure. Great question. Um, for me, it's a movie, 100%. A Taiwanese movie called Yang Guang Pu Jiao. A Son on Netflix. That's a great, great movie. You ever see it? I have. I it's, love it's amazing. that movie, man. I've watched it like, I think I watched it eight times because I just, I just love it. And I also learned, use that movie to study Chinese. Like I made a flashcard for every single sentence in that movie. No I, I just love the story. I love the characters. I love the music. I listen to the soundtrack all the time. I love that movie. Oh, it's a long, dope. kind of boring movie, but I just love it. I know, but it's, it's so good though. It's, it's yes, yeah, it's, it is. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. What is your favorite Taiwanese food? You know, I, I don't know, man. It's always changing. Um, to say like a favorite, this is going to be a bad answer, but I'll just say it right now. I'm just into like going to the Doujiang places and getting like Huanjiang and a Tianbing. Oh, nice. You have a sweet tooth. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Describe your dream vacation destination and what would you do or see there? Man, I go home, man. I go to, go to the cottage on Bay of Fundy. Oh, that's what I would do. Nice. My family, yep. If you won $100 million tomorrow, what would you do? 
go home and see my family. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, Build a bigger cottage. Yeah, man. Well, I, I would just uh, I would try and set up a life for myself where I can do what I want to do and play play music with people that I care about, people that I like. That's what I would do. Tea or coffee? Coffee. I, both. Yuan Yang Cafe. That's tea and coffee together. That's my shit. That's my favorite thing that I've drinking around here, man. Oh, wow. I don't have that in Dallas. You are going hard, man. <laughs> no more coconut water for you. <laughs> okay. Finally, easy one. What is the meaning of life? Oh, man. Life, man. I think like it's just, it's just to be able to enjoy the moments as they pass by. You know, it's not easy to do that because our, our attention is, gets you know, distracted with like little petty, you know, obsessions and addictions or just getting caught up in emotion or whatever. But um, each moment I think is, is, is really valuable if you can be there, be there with it. Oh, man. Beautiful. You killed it. You <laughs> that was killed hard, it. You killed it. That's 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 your improv chops right there. man. <laughs> I wanted to ramble a lot more. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it would be another uh, three hour rapid fire. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that was amazing. So. Finally, can you share some tips for some aspiring kind of young jazz musicians? What would you say to any kind of aspiring jazz musicians in Nova Scotia, in mm -hmm. Dallas, in Taiwan, in Tokyo, wherever they might be? What would you say to them? Yeah, my favorite question. Thank you. Um, mm. uh, so yeah, a couple things. Um, we'll, maybe we'll talk about the, the music practicing part of it a little bit, and then I'll talk about um, actually what, what to do with it in your life. So the first one is um, be aware that learning playing jazz is not difficult. It's very, very easy. And we get distracted by um, the mystique. A lot of musicians even want to say, oh, it's a mystery. It's not a mystery. It's very simple. So there's that aspect of it. So just, it is easy and you can do it. If you can learn to speak a language, like your, your own language, you can learn to play jazz. And it only requires you to do two things, basically. You need to learn songs. You need to learn vocabulary. So repertoire and vocabulary. So if, you're, if you want to learn jazz, just start learning jazz songs. What my recommendation is this. The common re recommendation for this is learn songs that other people are playing. I don't agree with this. I think it should be learn songs you like. You'll mm. spend more time on it if you're pursuing the music that you like. Even if it's not, if you say you want to be a jazz player, but what you really like is not quite jazz, then go with that. You know, because the skills that you learn of doing that will apply to other styles of music. So don't worry about it. Do what you like. Learn the songs that you like. If you, there's an album that you like, learn the songs on that album. Who cares if anyone else plays it? That's what I do, man. I show up to a jam session, I call tunes that I want to play and they can figure it out because <laughs> it's what I want to play. So that's that's very important. If you learn songs, you learn the, the melodies, the harmonies and the rhythms of jazz and learning the song. So you don't need to do anything else but that except for learning vocabulary. And so jazz is about improvisation. It's not, once again, it's not a mystery. You don't pull it out of your out of your ass. It doesn't come from anywhere, nowhere. It comes from the history, the tradition of the music. So you, you want to listen to the music you love and, and ask yourself, what did they do with this song? How did they improvise on this song and learn what they did? And then you can just do that, you know, do something similar to that. And the reality is like, you're always going to sound like yourself no matter what. So draw on the other great musicians and the musicians around you as much as possible. It's not going to make you sound less like yourself. You're only going to be yourself. So don't worry. Just study the music, learn the songs and learn the vocabulary and play it. So that's the technical thing. And the practical thing is um, you got to go where people are playing the kind of music that you want to play. So if you want to play metal music or if you want to play hip hop, maybe you should move to Atlanta where mm -hmm. that's where the hip hop is. If you want to play gospel, maybe you should move to Dallas. If you want to play like, I don't know, straight ahead jazz, the most cutting edge modern jazz, you have to move to New York. That's just the fact of it. So if you, if you stay at home in your parents' basement or you stay with your friends in wherever part of the world you live in, you're not going to get there. Maybe you can learn a bunch of, bunch of things and you can learn a lot of songs, you can learn a lot of repertoire, but you're not going to be, it's not going to matter because you're not part of a community. Jazz is about being in a community. You got to find the people that are playing the music and you got to play it with them, even if you're scared. So many people that are just starting out, 
they're scared and they just don't go out. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. It's like, man, you suck at music. You're new to this. You're scared. Go do it anyways. Go there and just completely fuck up. Sound like shit full, just like I did on stages in Texas. And then eventually you get confident and you learn that it's okay to fuck up for one. And you take what you learn and you get better. So go to the place that you want to, where the people are playing the music you want to play and then go there and play it with them. Whether you believe you're good enough or not. Drop the mic. <laughs> oh man. Were we just at church? Were we just at church, son? Yeah. That was a sermon from big Ben, big D Ben Holt. That's funny. Yeah. It's like a, yeah. Firelight, firelight church. Exactly. <laughs> Oh but man, I, that's what I think about all the that time. I think about those things constantly when I'm in the shower, when I'm biking around, when I'm in dapping. I'm thinking about that because I care about you know being able to pass on what I learned to other musicians, and I hope that they can uh, you know do those things and it can benefit them. Oh man, amen to that. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> you have heard it here from the Big D, Ben Holt. You can find him this Sunday at the Yuppie Bookstore Yuppie Cafe, Bookstore. Yeah. April twenty third. 2023 and if you miss that it doesn't matter just follow him at ben holt jazz ben holt jazz on instagram is probably the best way yeah follow him find him talk to him and just listen to him because not only can he rip on the guitar but clearly he's got some thoughts in his head too <laughs> he's got like some that. ideas sometimes it's amazing. It's a beautiful thing, man. But I just got to get your adjectives from earlier. <laughs> They'll exactly. have all the words. <laughs> exactly. I will I will open for you, man. Anytime, anytime. Dude, that would be amazing. <laughs> 100%. Oh, man. So I will see you this Sunday. It's been amazing jamming with you. Uh, yeah, man. We love you, Dennis, as well. Thanks for hooking this up. Thanks, Dennis. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Thanks, Kane, man. Thanks for having me, man. It's been fun uh, hanging out and going to these comedy clubs and talking. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, 100%. We'll be seeing each other again very soon, man. So awesome yep thank you everyone thank you for listening have a wonderful jazzy day <laughs> cheers y'all <laughs> all right cheers Woo. wow how, how long was that man two, two hours <laughs> <laughs>